morning to you. Good Thursday morning and welcome to Real Talk. Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks. That is and uh, has always been Ayla Brook and the Sound Men, the authors and performers of the Real Talk soundtrack. Boy, are we ever lucky to be able to spin tunes with their blessing uh, from their album Desolation Sounds released by Fallen Tree Records. It's October 21st, and this episode of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well. I often talk to you about Adam O'Brien. He's the uh, he's the founding CEO of Bitcoin Well, but of course, there's a big team there. It's a team that's grown in a big way over the past number of years, so much so that they're expanding their footprint. They're actually... I don't, I don't know if it's up to me to be making these big announcements. I know that they're going to be making the bigger announcement, but they've got a huge new location under construction in downtown Edmonton, which is super exciting. What it reiterates to me is that staff members, team members, they're like Benny. Benny is my man at Bitcoin. Well, see a bright future in speaking with fellow human beings, one-on-one answering questions about cryptocurrency in particular, Bitcoin, also Ethereum. And, and I mean, there's a ton of them, right? Do you have questions like most people do? May I recommend getting in touch with Benny at Bitcoin Well? You'll find him under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We have a fantastic conversation coming up in approximately... Well, about five minutes from now, uh, we're going to throw to we don't we don't typically do pre-recorded interviews, but when we do, we're not going to bullshit you. It's it's real talk. And so I'm not going to pretend like we used to pretend this is what big corporate media does to you, friends. I'm going to pull the curtain back here. I love like, what are we one minute into the show? And he's he's already taken big swipes. Well, what do you expect? I've walked in the shoes. They already tried it. They, you know, they always try to spin it like now we go to. And then as as the host, you're like, gosh, I hope the file doesn't get interrupted. I hope the computer doesn't crash while we're pressing play on this pre-recorded interview that we're pretending is live here's the deal rob myerson is the ceo of della lune space and adam steltzner is is a spacecraft designer uh who is who was what was he like mission he was like he was like basically the quarterback of the mars perseverance rover the 2020 perseverance rover like unbelievable perspective these two have and they're going to be uh, sort of co-keynoting. They're delivering a keynote together this weekend on Saturday, October 23rd, out in Jasper as part of the Dark Sky Festival. We're like, well, listen, we have to talk to these two guys about whether or not humanity has a future outside of the, you know, the limitations of planet Earth. And uh, they, they had limited availability. So we spent yesterday talking to them and we're going to roll that interview in just a second. It's so, so cool. Right. I mean, these are guys literally uh, that are working with talented teams to build rocket ships, uh, you know, to, to build, obviously, infrastructure and, and game plans for for NASA, but also for private and commercial space travel, uh, you know, 10 or 100 years from now. Might it be a normal thing? Just another weekend for humans to fly outside of what we've understood to be? The limitations of our particular reality in the solar system might might we hundreds or thousands of years from now actually inhabit another planet? What might that look like? I mean, we 
I'm just going to, I I don't want to oversell the interview, but I don't know that it's possible with an interview like this because it's so cool. And that's coming up in just a second. In about a half an hour from now, we're going to talk to a bioethicist by the name of Florence Ashley. Uh, you may have read a piece. There was a, a column uh, published in the Toronto Star just a couple of days ago. Uh, it, it, it gained uh, even more notoriety, I think, or at least there was a lot more attention shone upon it when celebrated Canadian author Margaret Atwood pushed it out. She retweeted it. She essentially uh, promoted it to her channels on Twitter. Why can't we say woman anymore was the headline. Rosie DeMano was the columnist with the star that wrote it. So we're, we're going to get into this. You, you may have heard language or, you know, people saying, uh, you know, you know, people who are pregnant as opposed to women or you're, you may hear people refer to things like, uh, you know, chest feeding as opposed to breastfeeding as an example. Uh, it's really been interesting in the few moments uh, since Sarah Hoyles pushed out our tweet from our official Real Talk RJ account announcing that I'd be talking to Florence Ashley today, we've already had some interesting responses from people who are, I mean, this is, this is their real life. This is their daily walk, like Nicole, who reached out and, and said, for example, I can't say mamas, the word mamas in my mom's group anymore. Nicole says, I was called out on it the other day. And a real talker by the name of Tim said, well, what what specifically was the rationale there? And Nicole said, and I know this is going to weird all of you out that there's actually like respectful, open minded dialogue happening on the Internet. You know why? That's because it's among real talkers. Not saying just saying. But look at this. uh, People seeking to understand one another's perspective and not swearing. I, I don't know what's going on. Are we turning the Internet upside down on this program? So Nicole circles back and said, well, this was in my adoption parents support book club. She says the comment was fair. Uh, though there aren't any male members in the group that I'm aware of. So I don't know. She said, but I do appreciate the person pointing it out to me. I'm looking forward to the conversation with the bioethicist on Real Talk today. Says, Nicole, I have some learning to do. I thought, hey, good on you, Nicole. I think the real talk on it is that the average person would probably be inclined to say things that may be offensive to some people and lack the understanding as to why that might be offensive. I think that's fair to say language changes, language evolves. You've seen it here on the show. You see it from time to time with your intrepid host who oftentimes says things that require a bit of correction or that prompt a bit of follow up from real talkers. And I think all of us over the past 10 coming up on 11 months. No, wait a second. We're like two days shy of our 11 month anniversary. Wow. It's kind of sneaking up on us over the past almost a year. We've done some learning on some things, haven't we? I, th- I think of my 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 particular, you know, my, my the January 4th show where I was going off script and and I quoted that line from Zoolander wondering if I is everybody taking crazy pills. And then you remember a real talker by the name of Leah McCrory reached out and she came on the show on January 5th. And we did a little bit of learning about ableist language and ableism. We've had moments where, you know, we talk about someone at the top of the totem pole or the bottom of the totem pole. You know, more than anything I learned on that is people in particular, an indigenous carver reached out and said, you know, the person at the bottom of the totem pole oftentimes carries the most prestige. The, the, the euphemism is actually twisted. People, it indicates a lack. said the bottom of the totem pole is not 
how it's described in the workplace. If you were to say, oh, that, oh, that guy's at the bottom of the totem pole, the carver says, that's not how it works, you guys. That's another example. I mean, there are many, many examples. Hoyles and I were joking about, I don't know how many of you are watching the, the show on, on Apple TV morning show with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. But there, there's a big scene there. It doesn't require a spoiler alert. I won't get too into it. But, but one of the broadcasters on camera gets in hot water talking about his spirit animal. These are the types of things where some people may say, well, what's our, like, oh, is everybody offended about everything these days? And other people may say, as a matter of fact, let me explain to you the background here and why that's something that we don't prefer to hear. Sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes we push back. Sometimes we roll our eyes and sometimes we go, gosh, I never thought of it that way. So I'm looking forward uh, when Florence joins us. I think that this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, Florence is a doctoral student at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, Joint Center for Bioethics. You've probably read their work in the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, Huffington Post, Montreal Gazette, et cetera, et cetera. And now I always wonder, they get to add, you know, every real talk, you know, the guest gets to say, you know, so they'll say, you may have heard them on like the NBC Nightly News and Al Jazeera and the Globe and Mail and Real Talk. Uh-huh. Well, did you see that the Reverend who was on yesterday, Michael Corrin, said, you know, uh, I've had the, the book has just been flying off the shelves, both online. So literally and figuratively. That's great. And he said, because of and named off all these places. Yeah. And real talk. It was great. Yeah, they sold out yesterday, I think. And, and Reverend Corin was reminding everybody that uh, said, and they're going to, they can reprint them. So they're, they're going to, don't, don't lose interest in the book. They're going to reprint them. I wanted to leave some time uh, for some emails today, and we're going to. I have five of them in my hand, and I commit to you. I shouldn't do this. Gosh, I commit to you. We're going to read all five. I've done it. I'm on the record. Folks, I'm going to keep notes here, I've and I'm going to keep a tally, make okay. sure we get to five. We could do it like as, as soon as we do one. It's like, one. one. We need we need like a dry erase board or like an old school chalkboard. We, the, you know, the fans can play along at home. And if I miss one, then we've got to buy everybody drinks or something like that. Hmm. I mean, I avoided a big commitment. I, I went on the record two years ago and said if Mike Nickel was elected mayor, I'd buy the city of Edmonton lunch. And I was sweating bullets for a little bit. But uh, but now, because I was, of course, as a responsible person would, someone who has a child learned about financial literacy. Um, see what I'm doing there, Hoyles? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I had, of course, been putting money away in my separate savings account to buy lunch for the city of Edmonton. No, I'm just kidding. You know what my plan was? Actually, I was just going to step up and say, all right, everybody, step up to the table. Come eat your shit sandwich. Congratulations on the. But no. What we're talking about with kids and financial literacy if you know me, you know that we can segue from one thing to anything. I'm also looking forward to an hour and 17 minutes from now uh, when Pam Leonage joins us, uh, the co-founder of Money Prep. She uh, is a, has a 25-year background in the financial services industry, but perhaps more importantly, she's a mother of four, and they've just developed a new app. Uh, it's a video game app to teach kids about money management. I think this is going to be great. You talk to anybody, not anybody, but this is a commonly recurring theme when people talk about curriculum, most especially, I think, in junior high and high school, but it's never too early to start learning. And people always say we do not teach young people enough about financial literacy. I mean, how are you learning about Genghis Khan and the Silk Road in grade two, but we're not learning about compounding interest and credit card debt until it's too late oftentimes for some people doesn't make any sense so that conversation is coming up as well let me get to an email before we get to our out of this world interview with rob and adam lauren was in touch with us yesterday to talk at ryanjesperson.com she said wow the show is on fire this week she said reverend michael corin 
sure had some interesting ideas on your show, uh, Ryan, and, and I completely agree that Jesus was a revolutionary thinker whose teachings and fame were a serious threat to the status quo. Lauren says, for the record and for context, I am not and have never been a Christian. But when you started talking abortion, she said the so-called pro-life movement always puzzled me because it seems unconcerned with what happens to the woman or to the person right, Hoyles, to the person or to her child once it's born. It doesn't seem very Christian to me. And when you and the Reverend Corin were talking about abortion, it reminded me why women, says Lauren, need to be included in that conversation. That anti-abortion movement is not pro-life, Ryan. It's pro-birth. They don't care about the born. They want to punish women for having sex and keep poor women in their place. Lauren says Arwa Madawi writes a weekly column in The Guardian called The Week in Patriarchy. And she wrote about this very issue within recent memory. And I'd recommend that Real Talkers check it out. Uh, Lauren says, I would love to see more discussion around language in this context on your show. Lauren says, it's been interesting to watch your journey, Ryan, around the use of language since you started the show. This is another issue where the words that we use are important and powerful. And then she signs off this. I read this one, her sign off a couple of times. She said, the show keeps getting bigger and better. Keep it up, but please don't get too big and wreck the magic. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting comment. How about this? We'll keep getting bigger, but we'll do whatever it takes to keep the magic. That's the promise we'll make. I promise you that, Lauren. I promise you. Coming up in just a second, can and will human beings live and exist beyond planet earth that coming up in just a moment but before we get there let me remind you that, that just because the leaves are falling or fall in depending on how strong the wind has blown through your street or depending on where you're tuning in i don't think our regular listeners in costa rica are worried about this at all I don't think that our friends that are tuning in from Hawaii, and thank you for that. We see you online. I don't think that you're concerned about that. But if you're in our neck of the woods, you know that typically you don't associate winter with landscape construction. But Eden Landscaping's got a ton of experience with that, whether it's building a pergola, an outdoor cook station, or even one of these three-season rooms that are really the rage right now. Expand the footprint of your home, more space for you and your family to spend together in a three-season room. They've been doing these for more than 20 years. You can get in touch with Mike and his team for a quote at landscapeedmonton.ca and you can find them absolutely anytime. I reached out to, to Chris Kozowski from Park Power the other day and I, I said, hey, you know, a lot of people are telling us that they're signing up. I said, but every time we mention a new perk or a new benefit or a new reason to check out parkpower.ca, we get even more interest. And he said, well, here's what he said. Here's something really interesting to mention to real talkers at parkpower.ca right now. They got a blog post up on natural gas rates. He says the, the point of this is for, for us to put some informative material out there. And he says that I, he says a lot of people are paying attention to natural gas rates on the rise. You know, if you're in Western Canada, if you're in Alberta in particular, in the context of park power, he says, you got to keep in mind that we're still in a pretty luxurious position. Despite the mainstream media talk, he says, if you take a look at some of those natural gas rates around the world, it's important to have some context. 
So you can check out the blog link at parkpower.ca. And a reminder, if and when you take your business there, make sure you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK to save 70 bucks off your first bill. Our friends at Tourism Jasper, this weekend, uh, wrapping up on Sunday, will mark the conclusion of another successful Dark Sky Festival. Saturday, a big part of that is a keynote speech delivered by two of the trailblazers when it comes to space exploration. We're bringing this interview interview to you now uh, for the first time. Uh, We recorded it yesterday afternoon with Rob Meyerson, the CEO of Della Loon Space, and Adam Stelzner, a spacecraft designer. We've been telling you for the past while it's a big weekend uh, coming up in one of our favorite places on planet Earth. We're talking, of course, about Jasper National Park. Uh, The Dark Sky Festival is underway, running through till October 24th, Saturday, October 23rd. Not to be missed as the festival welcomes two keynote speakers to tackle one of the biggest questions ever. The future of humanity on planet earth it's a real pleasure to welcome to the program those two keynote speakers ahead of their address on saturday afternoon in jasper rob myerson ceo of delaloon space former president of blue origin and adam stelzner spacecraft designer and an author and innovator and oh yeah chief engineer of nasa's mars 2020 perseverance mission uh, gentlemen it's a thrill to have you joining us welcome to real talk thanks for making time you're bad we're happy to be thanks. here. Yeah, thanks for having us. These are the types of questions that that people, amateurs like me, ask ourselves as we gaze off into space, oftentimes around a campfire. I wonder where humanity might wind up. I, I wonder what might force us off planet Earth. I, I wonder if we might be able to survive elsewhere. Rob, you first. You're taking the question head on. <laughs> I will take it head on. Yeah, I think, I think we are uh, ready to start. Looking at even even just in the last few months, we've seen uh, the growth of commercial human spaceflight, and I think we're ready to ready to start um, having regular people, non non professional astronauts, uh, experience space and uh, help to share that experience with others. So much like we're hearing from William Shatner here just in the last last few days. So. I know this is a, such a timely conversation, and I'm grateful to have you here. I want to ask you about w- William Shatner. I want to ask you about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and, and I want to ask you about uh, the hundreds of millions of people on planet Earth who would at least entertain the idea of space travel in one context or another. Adam, was that, was that kind of the impetus? I mean, the big, big, big picture impetus of the Perseverance mission, the rover that's on Mars as we speak to it, to explore the potential of human life there on the red planet? Well, the big, big impetus, of course, for all of us is this um, human drive to explore, which is fundamentally an expression of our humanity. Um, For our rover, for Perseverance, her main goal is to actually take samples of the surface of Mars for return to Earth so that we can understand the um, history of Mars and and uh, peel back the levels of layers of the onion and see if Mars was ever alive. If, if life ever started on Mars, we know that three and a half billion years ago when life was just starting here on Earth, the conditions to support life were ripe on Mars. So was it alive? Is there evidence of life? These are the questions that Perseverance is trying to answer. So, Rob, when we talk about 
human life or life outside of the context or the environment of of planet Earth? Do we automatically go to Mars? I mean, I, you know, I'm approaching this, to be quite honest, from a, from a high school level of understanding of space. All right. So so you're going to have to to treat some of these questions, maybe at a layperson's level. But is Mars the obvious one to to go to? Well, I, I, I think it is. I think it's the it's the planet that we most think about as, as having the potential of of supporting human life. So uh, it's natural to go to Mars, and, and uh, but Mars is a long way away. It's uh, six to eight months away with uh, current technology, um, and I think there's a lot of things that we can do to practice and gain experience with living off Earth in low Earth orbit and on the Moon. And uh, and Adam and I have many discussions about this, and it's. Uh, um, I think Mars is the, the, you know, the ultimate, you know, not the end, but the, but, 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 a, but an ultimate destination. But I think uh, going to the moon and, and uh, getting settled there is a, is a great first step and a logical first step for, for us and for humankind, because, because space is an extreme environment. It's, it's, uh, um, and it's really hard to work in an extreme environment. So we have to learn about living and working in space before, before I think uh, it's realistic to, to send, you know, dozens or or even more people to to the surface of mars so. So, so adam when you and rob and others are talking about this at a high level or or at least as a high level of understanding as you can have at this point uh what are some of the hurdles that would stand in the way of of humankind broadening its own horizon so to speak well, one of the challenges, uh, one of the many challenges, of course, is that we evolved on this planet. And so we are um, connected to Earth in more ways. Well, I'll, I'll make the assertion we're connected to, to Earth in more ways than we understand today. Yeah. Um, uh, we are um, uh, creatures of this environment. Our, um, our bodies work in harmony with the Earth environment. So we would need to be making Mars as Earth-like and bringing lots of um, earth with us, frankly, lots of microorganisms with us. We would need to be um, uh, looking to make Mars as livable as possible. And so that would start by, by bringing uh, habitats that in which we can have plants and dirt and, and animals uh, similar to those that we have here on earth to supply us with the necessary environmental um, surroundings. Yeah, because like, let's just to state the obvious here, but I, I'd love to know how the two of you would approach the answer um, evolution over the course of millions and millions and millions and millions of years. If you're talking about humanity's ability to survive on Mars or elsewhere, uh, you, you'd either have to talk about imposing our favorable environment there or, or some sort of a hyperspeed evolution, which I'm quite certain that's not exactly how it works. So the options are limited. Right. And there's a lot of radiation at Mars um, compared to Earth. Um, Mars has lost its magnetic field um, because it cooled. And so it's dynamo. You know, here on Earth, we've got this molten um, uh, uh, core and a magnetic field. And that magnetic field sh sh uh, shelters us from the radiation environment of of the sun and protects our atmosphere from being swept away uh, by the solar winds. That doesn't happen on Mars, so you have a much more diffuse atmosphere. You have a much higher radiation environment, and so it is not—it's uh, not a great place to live today. And it will be thousands of years before it is a great place to live, or maybe tens of thousands of years. Um, but we could live there in 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 habitats, and we could construct um, uh, settlements. Uh, it would be living indoors. 
And we would want to make those indoors environments as uh, as habitable and as desirable a place to live as possible. So are we are we talking about this? And, and Rob, I don't mean to step on your toes. I'll let you take the take the baton here and run with it. But but are we talking about this as a last resort? In other words, as humanity, we've destroyed planet Earth to the point that that climate change and other factors make the planet uninhabitable and we've got to go somewhere else. Or are there other reasons behind this type of exploration? Yeah, I, I don't think of it that way. Uh, think about it that way, Ryan. It's uh, it's not the doomsday scenario. I think uh, I think if we don't do anything, if we don't uh, do anything about what we're you know our impacts here on planet Earth, there will be will be that. But uh, I do think we have decades, if not a century or so, to to um, to get ourselves ready. And and one thing I'd like to add to what Adam's saying is living on Mars in these you know early days, whether that's decades or you know 30 to 50 years out in habitats we're going to require having robots there uh, and autonomy those um so so when people talk about robotic versus human exploration i really think about it being both because Mm -hmm. uh our astronauts that are living on mars in this remote environment that's that's you know months away from earth um are going to need significant levels of autonomous systems and robots to, to help them survive uh, to do to do things that are just going to be too um, too difficult for for a human to do to suit up and and go outside and do so. You've had, I mean, Rob, what an incredible uh, insight you have as as former president of Blue Origin. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, the company's basically been innovating and exploring uh, opportunities in and around uh, commercial and even civilian space travel, a, a privately funded exercise and a, and a lot of, uh, I mean, really cool stuff for people that follow along. I think people are being led to believe, myself included, that public opportunities civilian opportunities around space travel are upon us how close yeah. are we to that and how much further down the field does the ball move when a when a high profile celebrity like most recently william shatner and there have been others spends 10 minutes up there four minutes with you know the, without the effects of gravity what does that do to further the public interest and fascination well, I, I think it's the, the obvious when a celebrity like William Shatner does go up, the, the, the words that, you know, what they what they can share, they can share to a much broader audience. So that megaphone is uh, is much more effective when you have a celebrity. Um, and, I, and I think that we are um, as far as like how quickly, how soon, you know, we're coming to open up the space frontier to others. I, it's happening now, but we're still at the very, very early stages. The prices are still high. Um, it's not a price that that many of us can afford. Um, but, uh, but when you see a mission like William Shatner's mission last week, or um, the inspiration for mission uh, a few weeks before that, uh, where you see everyday folks uh, um, having the opportunity to experience space and share that with others, I think it's, uh, it's going to start to accelerate uh, what, uh, how people are inspired by it, um, and, and how they, how they think about their position in the future of the space industry. I think that's, uh, we're, we're just beginning to see that impact and, uh, I, I'm very excited about it. So obviously, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you can't be, I just, I don't even know really where to cap my, my imagination on this. And maybe the point is, is that we shouldn't. Um, and then at the same time, I, I recognize and acknowledge that my imagination probably doesn't even know where to begin because my level of comprehension and understanding of all this is is so limited. And that's why I think there's such a public a thirst for this. I mean, Adam, right before I talked to the two of you, 
I popped in. I thought, I wonder how many people watch these NASA video updates of the Perseverance rover. I wonder how many people subscribe to the to the NASA YouTube channel. I mean, it's it's millions, <laughs> like millions of people. Tens of millions. Tens, ten, of, millions. tens of millions are interested yeah. in this type of thing. How much have we learned about Mars uh, or how much has, has, has our understanding of it deepened as a result of, you know, the Perseverance rover or, or other fact finding missions? Well, we've uh, our understanding of Mars has completely been rewritten almost every time we go there with every successive mission. Um, we first went in um, in the 70s with the Viking missions, and we thought we would see um, rodents scurrying across the surface of Mars. The, the, the people involved were really certain that they would see they wanted to have lights to turn on at night to see the rodents scurrying across the surface of Mars. The Mars we found in the 70s looked desolate and dead. The Mars we've been back to is apparently desolate and dead, although what we learned in 2004 is that at one point it had been very wet. And Curiosity in 2012, uh, another one of these nuclear-powered mega rovers like Perseverance, she taught us that when it was wet three and a half billion years ago, the conditions to support life were ripe on the surface of Mars. The con it was a wet, lush environment that would support life. So Perseverance is there, landed this year, uh, to take samples of Mars and bring them back to Earth to help us understand if there is evidence of past life on the surface of Mars. How did the two of you, like, how did this journey begin, Rob? Like, well, what did what did seven or eight or ten-year-old Rob dream about what did he think about when he looked up to the constellations well i'll go back a few a five-year-old rob i remember was playing in a cardboard mock-up of the lunar lunar lander in the kitchen of my my home uh 10 year old rob was launching starting to launch rockets out of the front driveway of my house and thinking about you know where uh where i might fit in this future industry and and then of course you know just uh Ten years later, I was a, a co-op student at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, working for NASA uh, while I was in college. So, uh, um, you know, I, I, I say, you know, think big, you know, keep uh, keep your options open, and 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 really uh, seek out. I think the the importance of mentoring, seeking out a mentor, and, and finding a mentor who can help you get where you where you want to go, are some some key key points that I think benefited me over my career. No kidding. We're, we're going to have a bunch of people listening to this on the podcast, but for the benefit of the people watching on YouTube, Sam, can you call that photo up again of Adam? Adam, it looks to me like this. I think this is in mission control. T tell us about this. Like you are, you look like a football coach. This just won this, this just saw his quarterback throw the winning touchdown of the Super Bowl. I mean, what's going through your mind at this point? Uh, this is curiosity. This is curiosity landing. This landing night for curiosity in in uh, in 2012, and this are these are the first images, thumbnail pictures of the surface of Mars, taken by the Curiosity rover moments after touchdown. And this is us reacting to them on the screen as they come down. You know the numbers, the ones and zeros that come down and tell you that the rover's done its job. They um, are hard to connect with. And they don't have the impact that the first images from a new place in our solar system have on the team that made those images possible. Absolutely unbelievable stuff. And you know that you're going to have a captive audience uh, when people are showing up. And have either of you been to Jasper National Park before, by the way? I never have. Oh, I, I, 
I was I was there two years ago. Yes. Yeah. So, so you know what to expect, Rob. I mean, it's 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 a dark sky preserve, and it's just. I had a chance to be out at the the planetarium there just a couple of months ago, and it's just it's wondrous, even for a pleb like me. You know what I mean? To be able to start to wrap your minds around these things and and stuff that's old hat maybe to you guys because of your you know your line of work and your expertise and all this, but. But I guess I'm even used to assuming that, that those big old telescopes are going to be maneuvered by someone who's going to be finding the proper, uh, you know, focal settings so I can go. No, I mean, they're running these these uh, telescopes, as you know, computer controlled. I mean, they've, people have telescopes all around the world. I heard a story about a guy that controls his telescopes from his home in Maine, and he's got mm-hmm. telescopes down in the southern hemisphere. I mean. The, even the civilian interest here and the capabilities of people to explore space, including, you know, for example, at this Dark Sky Festival are really, really remarkable. You, you, could, you could say like the, the age of space interest has never had more promise for the average person. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's a it's a wonderful time to be looking to the heavens. Yeah. It's a wonderful time and it's a wonderful audience up in Jesper. So I'm looking forward to going back. So cool. So it's coming up. Uh, this Saturday, October 23rd, uh, the two of you will be speaking in the afternoon from 3 to 5 p.m. at the Jasper Activity Center. And tickets are available for just $20. You can check out uh, our website in partnership with Tourism Jasper, jasper.travel slash Realtalk, if you'd like to know more about tickets. Fellas, just in closing, I know I should end on a positive note, but 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 maybe I'll end with just a reminder of some of the things that we're capable of here, of here as human beings. I mean, we've spent the week talking about the Fairy Creek blockades, people trying to stop logging at old growth forests. And of course, we were talking just a couple of weeks ago about a pipeline rupture that was having implications off the coast of California. And we we understand more about climate change more now than we have ever before. Do you think we as humans are, are hardwired to have a negative impact on whichever planet we colonize? Or do you think that maybe a a transition over the course of maybe the next 10,000 years, if that's what it takes, do you think it might reset human tendency? I think it has to, I think we're smart enough. Um, we, um, uh, haven't previously really had to watch what we do and take care of how we behave, but we are so successfully dominant here on earth that um, our success is becoming our failure. And we're going to have to strike a balance, a conscious balance of equilibrium. Um, We will be the first species on earth to ever do that. I can't imagine what will be the first species in the universe to have ever done it. But I think that time is coming upon us now. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with with Adam. But I'd also say that we're we're a species that can learn from from you know from the past, and uh, and we can learn a lot from from our understandings and our our observations from space. So impacts on climate change, we can learn about those things greatly from the technologies and and other things that we put in space uh, to look back on Earth. So, uh, uh, but I couldn't agree more with Adam. So, guys, there's there's human beings elsewhere, right? Humans. There's 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 uh there's life elsewhere. There's no doubt about that. If you yeah, if you no if doubt. you put numbers in the what's called the Drake equation, um, you come up to the conclusion that it is impossible that there isn't life elsewhere in our universe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe may, maybe we'll still be here when we find out 
that much more about it. I don't know. If so, it's going to be in part to the work done by experts like the both of you. Um, we're really thrilled to have been able to have a chance to check in with you. Um, I mean, I just even preparing for this conversation had so much fun reading up on on what the two of you are doing alongside your talented colleagues. Rob Meyerson, of course, the CEO of Della Lune Space, uh, former president of Blue Origin and Adam Stelzer joining us, uh, chief engineer of NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance Mission, a spacecraft designer, author and innovator. Both of them delivering a keynote together this Saturday in Jasper. Again, our website, jasper.travel slash real talk fellas thanks for helping us dream big today we really appreciate it thanks for having us yeah thank you ryan yep fantastic conversation really enjoyed that and our thanks again to rob meyerson and adam steltzner enjoy the trip out to jasper if you're headed out there this saturday as they wrap up dark sky festival an amazing weekend in store if 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 you're traveling beyond jasper if you're going to be flying out of Edmonton International Airport, maybe you're looking for a sunny locale. Maybe you'd like to stretch your legs, see the sun hit your face, maybe get a little sand between your toes near the end of October. You can't do that everywhere. You know where you can do it. Walk around in a t-shirt and shorts. Non-stop service from Edmonton to Hollywood Burbank this winter. How cool is that? Go see the, what do they call it? The Hollywood Star Walk? What's it called? The, the Walk of Stars? The Star Walk? The Star Walk of Fame? We should know the answer to this. It's time for another trip to Hollywood. <laughs> That's exactly what that means. It's time for another trip to Hollywood. Team retreat! Woo-hoo! COVID's been messing with us. We haven't had a, a, a Real Talk team retreat yet. We're going to have to do something about that, I think. If we do, and we're flying out of EIA, you know where we're going to park our cars. We're going to park them at Jet Set Parking. And before we go, we're going to go to jetsetparking.com and reserve our parking because if you use the promo code REALTALK, either with or without a space, huh? either with or without, we got you covered, Real Talkers. The promo code REALTALK will get you parking for $8 a day for any travel by the end of 2022, like a year and two months from now. How great is that? The promo code REALTALK online at jetsetparking.com. Also wanted to take a quick second to remind you that our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are getting super excited about Thursday, October 28th. That's a week from today. It's Miracle Treat Day. And that's when all blizzard sales are going to be donated to the Stollery Children's Hospital. Not all profits. The entire amount donated to the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation from the Dairy Queens. They do it a little bit different at these five. The Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. I know they don't want me using their spots to pick fights with other Dairy Queens. That's not the point. But a lot of the Dairy Queens use the proceeds. These guys, like they use the profits. These guys use the whole shebang. And it's men in past years, six-figure donations to the Stollery. They would blush. Mark and Michael and Michelle would blush, the ownership group, if they heard me talking about that six-figure thing. But it's relevant. And that's why we're so proud to partner with them. Thursday, October 28th, they're taking pre-orders and they'll deliver for free if the orders are big enough. So if you want to help people out, hook people up with a blizzard, who doesn't love a blizzard? Next Thursday is a great time to do it. Well, there was a column in uh, the Toronto Star. Uh, It was published on Friday, written by Rosie DeMano, a star columnist. Why can't we say woman anymore? Margaret Atwood, celebrated Canadian author, pushed it out from her Twitter, and and that got even more people talking about what was already certainly prompting a lot of discussion. 
the column opens. You make me feel like a natural person with a vagina. Man, I feel like a person who menstruates. Oh, pretty person with a cervix. Apologies to Aretha Franklin, Shania Twain and Roy Orbison. But this appears to be where we're heading. If language radicals get their way that from Rosie DeMano, you know, the mandate of real talk is to explore different angles and different perspectives. And we're so grateful that bioethicist Florence Ashley has agreed to join us to talk about this based out of Toronto. They're a doctoral student at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, the Joint Center for Bioethics. And you've likely read uh, Florence's work, public writing in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, the Huffington Post and elsewhere, making their Real Talk debut. Welcome to the show. And it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So are you, uh, as you as you're reading this lead by Rosie DeMano, it's it's it, it's enough to prompt a smirk. It's a creative lead, but I suspect you're probably going to take issue with the premise. So what did you make of this assertion? You can't say woman anymore. I mean, there's a bit of irony considering that, uh, you know, there there's the claim that we can't say woman anymore because of trans community. And yet. So many people in the trans community are trans women and very much, you know, pointing out that there are indeed women and would like to be referred as such. The reality is that there's really no effort to um, to erase the word woman. People are just asking to also account for the fact that in many contexts, women are not the only people who are concerned and that a language that also includes them would be preferable. So. When you see a column like this in the Toronto Star, is it something where you say, okay, this will prompt conversation? I mean, in part, it's why you're here on this show. The door would have been open anyway, but it's what prompted us to reach out to you. Is it a good thing in the sense that it's putting this debate or or perhaps this progress on people's radar? Does it feel to you when a national columnist takes this on in the spirit that they did? Does it it feel to you like a step backward? Uh. I think it's perhaps less a step backward than a hinder to progress. But the unfortunate part is that, you know, you have this opinion that's kind of quite misleading in many ways, for instance, admonishing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the United States for using um, menstruating bodies or bodies who menstruate. I can't, I can't say I quite remember which, which terminology was used, but, um, you know, and, and then claiming that it raises women, completely forgetting the fact that in the actual speech where she said that, she spoke specifically about women and people who menstruate. So women were not at all erased, both were, you know, both were mentioned. It was simply an acknowledgement that, uh, that you know, trans men and non-binary people who are assigned female at birth may also need to have access to uh, abortion. And, you know, that also didn't stop her from mentioning the uh, misogyny of uh, of restrictions on abortion so it's it's really a bit of a, a misleading uh, attack in in this regard and um the unfortunate part of that is that this sort of you know if you don't know what is happening it's quite reasonable to 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 be alarmed by a by an, a column like this but then the problem is that the corrections and you know the voices of trans people who are like whoa whoa, whoa that's not what's actually happening this is not uh, actually what's happening um don't get heard nearly as much you know uh, especially when you have people like margaret atwood sharing a perspective that is uh, kind of a hostile to trans inclusion and doubly more so when they're 
the reality of social media means that you, these um, these positions are kind of like resisting change are always going to be shared more because people are feared of change are fearful of change which is understandable to a certain degree but that's precisely why we need people to talk about this in uh, a kind of more careful manner in a more uh, in in a less misleading way we had an interesting response as soon as we announced uh florence that you're going to be joining us on the show today uh an audience member in good faith tweeted at us and said i can't say mamas the word mamas in my mom's group anymore and i was called out on it the other day and uh nicole went on to say the comment was fair uh, said there aren't any male members in the group that I'm aware of, but I do appreciate this person pointing it out to me. I'm looking forward to Florence on the show today. I have some learning to do. So let, let's begin for the average person that may say, hang on, wait a second. Why can't you say mamas at the mom's book club? Um, help us do some learning here. What, what's the important yeah. point or points to consider? Yeah, so the reality is like oftentimes, first of all, you don't necessarily know who uh, who is there and what their gender identity is, especially if it's not, you know, if it's if it's among friends, obviously, you usually do. So that's fine, you know, but in other contexts, you might not know how people uh, identify and you might have people who don't consider themselves to be mothers who are trans men or who are non-binary people. You know, like most of the time people look at me and think I'm a woman. Um, I don't and I'm not I don't consider myself a woman I use they them pronouns so uh, it's really more just of a and, and really the emphasis is not so much on don't say mothers it's don't only say mothers when you're referring to a group of people that may very well include people who are not mothers um, because you will have people who are uh, for instance transgender men who will you know, be pregnant who will go through a lot of, um, you know, obstetric discrimination, uh, a lot of, uh, it tend to have uh, asymmetrical parenthood obligations and uh, things like that. And then, um, so are facing many of the same issues as people in, uh, in these groups. So want to join them because there's nowhere else. And then are, and then enter a group and then get called mothers when they've already had to fight for their respect of their identity so long and especially in this context where there's a lot of discrimination in the healthcare system when it comes to uh, you know pregnant fathers uh, which can be uh, quite an issue so you're kind of compounding that difficulty and you're also reminding them of the fact that you know they face all of that discrimination they're trying to find a safe space to discuss their difficulties and now they have nothing. Uh, Florence, yesterday was International Pronouns Day and I saw a bunch of people commenting on it on on social media. If there were to be one or or perhaps a couple of takeaways from that, uh, let me rephrase the question. Let me start again. Where, if you had your choice to shine the spotlight on something for all humanity to see on International Pronouns Day, what would you want that takeaway to be? I think in terms of pronouns, it's important not to assume that there's any sort of correspondence between what people look like and the pronouns that they use and the gender identity that they have. People of every appearance 
can use any pronouns. So it's important not to assume and to simply ask and also for your own. So, you know, that's what we see a lot is, you know, when I'm working the healthcare field and I'm training people in the healthcare field, what we suggest is if you're a doctor, you say, hi, I'm Dr. Ashley. I use they, them pronouns. And then you invite, and that's, you're inviting the other person to just share their own. It's really just kind of the same as learning people's name. You learn their name and you learn their pronouns. I, I want to ask you about a couple of I mean, there have, there have been several celebrity incidents. Uh, can we call them in the past? I mean, in the past number of days, certainly past number of weeks um, and even in months past. I'm, I'm, of course, talking about Margaret Atwood just a couple of days ago. J.K. Rowling, the I mean, the author behind the Harry Potter series, one of the best selling authors in the history of planet Earth um, in a tweet that that got her as, as Rosie DeMano writes in the star that got her, quote, bludgeoned by the mob uh, when J.K. Rowling tweeted people who menstruate. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Wombin, Wimpund, Woomud, trying to be cute, I guess, uh, got her in a world of trouble, certainly. And then, of course, there's what's going on right now with Netflix and the most recent special uh, by Dave Chappelle. Do these types of high profile stories or incidents or developments encourage you in the sense that society's talking about it? Uh, there's conversations happening. There, there's perceived progress or no? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think so because I think a lot of those, uh, a lot of those people end up being sort of like a, resem- a, a, a kind of like a, a point of a rallying point for uh, for polarization and for people who oppose, uh, you know, trans inclusion. And oftentimes, it comes from a place of either, uh, you know misunderstanding or callousness, which is quite unfortunate. And the problem is uh, not only do, you know, these people are are coming from wherever they're coming from, but uh, they're also kind of sharing that to the world and communicating to others that it's okay to just make this kind of like snappy statements without actually understanding the, the reality of trans people and what is actually going on. And, you know, like, for instance, with uh, J.K. Rowling, it was, again, a case of where, um, where you had somebody who chose to use that word to be inclusive and then gets railed on by J.K. Rowling. And then, you know, if anybody's getting bludgeoned to death, it's the, the people that are being, uh, that are being kind of like, uh, quote tweeted by J.K. Rowling and now has all of her fans going mm. after them. And in terms of bludgeoning to death, I mean, if being J.K. Rowling or Dave Chappelle is what being bludgeoned to death is like, I mean, I want to be bludgeoned to death. That sounds fantastic because they have huge audiences and so much money. And a lot of that is just giving them free publicity by, um, by you know, yes, a lot of people are criticizing them, but a lot of people are also reactionarily just kind of like standing behind them because they don't really like trans people and don't really like trans movements. So they decide now J.K. Rowling's their favorite author. Now Dave Chappelle's their favorite comedian. I see. Right. Uh, an interesting statement from uh, a beloved Canadian and, and can I say multi uh, Emmy Award winning a producer, writer, actor, uh, Dan Levy, uh, a statement here standing in solidarity uh, with the Netflix employees that are pushing back on the Dave Chappelle special, The Closer. And and essentially, Dan Levy saying, like, this is not a debate. I stand with every employee at Netflix using their voice to ensure a safe and supportive work environment. He says he's seen it firsthand 
how vital television can be when it comes to influencing cultural conversations, that the impact is real and that it works both ways, positively and negatively, uh, says Dan Levy in this statement. Transphobia is unacceptable and harmful. That isn't a debate. How big of a deal is that? I think that's great. And I think that's quite right. I mean, there's a certain irony in the claim that was uh, initially made and now kind of partly retracted by the co-CEO of Netflix that, you know, comedy has no, you know, real world impact because comedy as an art form has always been predicated on having a real world impact. It was always a way to, you know, shake power, make people think. And so, to then start claiming that, oh no, it's apolitical, it has no real world impact. As soon as it's deciding to you know, spend half an hour bashing trans people's bit, uh, it's quite a bit ironic and kind of runs counter to everything we know about the entertainment industry. You know, People's thoughts on topics don't come just out of nowhere. They're not God-given coming down from the sky. Um, people get their ideas somewhere. And when you have a, a huge show that's, you know, in your uh, kind of rec- Netflix top recommended, the hottest in Canada list, and that spends, you know, half an hour uh, making fun of trans people, um, then obviously you're going to think, well, I guess making fun of trans people is really okay and their uh, and their life issues i guess can't be that bad huh. um an interesting comment here from jill who says um you know quote women and people who menstruate is fine the problem is when articles just refer to all of us as bleeders or menstruators or gestational bodies jill says most articles do not use women and is women and people who menstruate to you an inclusive statement? And let me ask you, is that an acceptable statement? Yeah, absolutely. And also that was that was what was said in the context uh, by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Mm. Um, now, you know, different people make different editorial choices when they are writing things. Um, I don't personally think that there's any issue with seeing like with saying like people who menstruate in a certain context, but I also see a lot of, you know, women and other people who menstruate. And I don't think it's quite true that uh, there's like a clear dominance of uh, of one over the other. I just think that one gets certainly a lot more of pushback. Uh, with that said, there, there there's a kind of a there's a certain irony in the in in the Canadian context of this kind of resistance to the kind of person who language. Uh, given that we still have the Governor General Award uh, in the you know in commemoration of the person's case. And one of the biggest feminist victories in Canada was precisely this inclusion as persons and this shift in language for women being included in persons. So uh, so I think there's a bit of irony. And I, and I certainly understand the concern about, you know, women being erased. But when we look at the entire context, it's also a question of, you know, when is it when does it matter and when does it matter less? And so, for instance, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about the Texas bill prohibiting uh, abortion, she talked about women. She talked about misogyny. Why? Because these bills are deeply sexist, deeply misogynistic and are really coming from this kind of white patriarchal mindset. When you're talking 
about when you're, you know, writing in a, um, when you're writing in, you know, in a scientific article where you have a strict word count and like the Lancet and the word counts are brutal at the Lancet having submitted there in the past, um, you're going to use, you're going to go shorter. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily an issue. You can find more about what Florence Ashley does, a bioethicist, by visiting their website, FlorenceAshley.com. You can follow them on Twitter at But Not The City. Florence, thanks for making time for us today. We appreciate it. Have a great day. You got it. I appreciate the comments online, too. I mean, the live chat right now, there's uh, like, when's the last time? I know I keep saying this, but and, and I'm not going to, I guess, obsess over it. But I, I just, when's, where else on the Internet? And don't go looking for it because you become disillusioned, discouraged and appalled. Where else on the Internet are you finding a respectful conversation about pronouns, language, gender? I mean, I, I can I just say for a second, I'm I'm proud of you, real talkers. It means a lot to me. Not everybody is going to see eye to eye on these things. Not everybody's going to understand things to to the same depth of the same level. And it just means a lot to us to see these conversations happening. Dylan, who's joining us now, I saw in the live chat, said, you know, it'd be really neat is on Real Talk. If the fonts where you font, you see the things coming up on the screen. If you watch us on Real Talk, Dylan said, in addition to like their the guests, social media handles and their website, if you could put their pronouns in there, I wanted to address that. And I wanted to let you know that while you may not see it in the guest font, it is part of our production process. And behind the scenes, when Sarah Hoyles is corresponding with our guests, that is one of the things that we ask the guest is their preferred pronouns. And so I will you will hear me using their preferred pronouns in the interview, though it may not come up. Why are you looking at me right now like you're nervous about this? Um, I'm just nervous that uh, the the. The idea of preferred pronoun, people say don't use preferred pronoun, say pronoun, because that's their pronoun. Sure, like like people saying back in the day, don't say sexual preference. Yeah. Like that that, that was church language. What's your sexual preference? <laughs> <laughs> people always say, yeah, what's his, well, hey, listen, if somebody makes the choice to be gay, that's none of my business. And you're like, well, it's not really a choice. Fair enough. Point taken, Hoyles. This is reason number 6,429 why we're lucky to have Hoyles on our team. But I wanted to address the fact that Dylan suggested it and i wanted to let you know the wheels are already in motion on that and we appreciate the perspective and we love when you have suggestions on things that you think that we could do or things you know we could do to make the show better including uh becoming more inclusive and that's something that's really important to us and it's a top priority to us uh for reasons that are obvious and may not be sometimes it's personal for us sometimes it's it's bigger picture and a lot of times it's prompted by your correspondence to the show including emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com jesse wenty coming up in just a second i am so excited to have jesse on the program first i wanted to take a quick second to remind you how proud we are to partner with the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. You know if you use the promo code REALTALK at granddog.ca, you'll get 10% off your first-time order delivered to your door. Check this out. A customer testimonial. Absolutely love this one. The team at Grand Dog passed this along to us. They said, we think you're going to like this one. They said, this is from a family. This is from a customer. It says, we rescued Tyson last December with the knowledge that he had allergies and had to have him on a select diet and manage it. And the vet told us he needed to be on this hydrolyzed protein kibble. They prescribed to limit some skin conditions, a perpetual rash. That's a great band name, Perpetual Rash. Anyway, Tyson fully rejected the food and he was refusing to eat. And so they switched to a limited ingredient diet without his allergies to see how it would work. And he loved it. 
they said. So hoping to find food that he would stick to permanently, we took a shot on going raw and we found Grand Dog Essentials. Your product absolutely changed how Tyson ate. He was ecstatic for mealtimes. His big jowls really soak up our kitchen floors. Beside his eating habits, his rash cleared up in a week. The smell was gone. His coat is vastly healthier than before. He's been eating Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food for six months now, is loving it says Tyson's human best friend. I just wanted to thank you. We can't recommend you guys enough to people. Most people stay with what's working for them, but I will sing Grand Dog's praises every chance I get. I love it, Tyson. Such a good boy. 10% off with the promo code RealDog at granddog.ca. The overbite on those is just so... Isn't that the best? The teeths. The little teeths. <laughs> that dog. Such a good dog. I love we just like do these like bizarre ad reads and then we're just like right back to business. Here we go. Uh, if you pay attention to, you know, I mean, like informed thought, reason, dialogue, challenging conversations, including those around reconciliation. I probably don't have to tell you, Canada, that there's a brand new book out that from the minute it was released, uh, already a national bestseller, Unreconciled, Family Truth and Indigenous Resistance. It's written by Jesse Wente, uh, an Anishinaabe writer, a broadcaster, an arts leader, the member of the Serpent River First Nation and chair of the Canada Council for the Arts in 2020. Uh, Jesse, we're thrilled to have you joining us here on the show. A warm welcome to you. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Unreconciled. Uh, it, it may be commentary on the state of the nation, uh, but with your opener, I mean, when you talk about yourself uh, standing over home plate 10 years old, uh, it's personal testimony as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was the idea, was that the title was meant to represent both my feelings about the the country that is currently called uh, Canada and and myself and i would say both of those are in a uh, ongoing process of reconciliation can you tell our audience members that may not have had a chance yet to get their hands on the book about that experience yourself as a as a 10 year old boy i mean you write quote this was the exact moment i learned i was an indian Sure. You know, um, like so many kids who grew up in the, well, I assume like so many kids who grow up today, I played in a, you know, neighborhood little league, uh, softball, um, uh, uh, league and, um, you know, all the kids would play Ryan. Like it was one of those where it was what everyone did during the summer. And so we played for years. My dad was a coach. My sister played. My parents would come and watch the games. My grandparents, who lived across the street from us in the same neighborhood, would often come uh, watch the games when they could. And it was a really nondescript game. I don't remember anything else really about this particular game, but this incident, which I was um, coming up to plate. I was a decent player. I wouldn't say, you know, I'm obviously not playing professionally, so I wasn't that good. Um and the kids, you know, as you would find at a uh, neighborhood softball league game, they would, you know, taunt the opposing team. And typically, you know, we want a pitcher, not a belly itcher was about as harsh yeah. as it got, Ryan. I, I mean, it is a damning indictment to want a uh, to say someone is a belly itcher. If, I mean, if, I understand. I mean, it's the what could be worse. 
Oh, I mean, uh, horrible <laughs> rebuke. Um, but so, you know, we were very used to it and, you know, very normal. Our Every team did it. But at this particular time when I came up to bat, they made a noise that was, um, ex- pardon the pun, reserved very specifically for myself, which is they, um, they war whooped mm. in the manner of, I mean, it's not a human sound, really. It's a sound that belongs to saturday morning cartoons of my childhood and and western movies of a of a certain uh era and so they made this this war whooping sound and you know when i write in the book that this is the moment i understood i was an indian i should be clear it's the moment i understood that that's how people would view me yeah as an indian i knew i was anishinaabe and ojibwe i've never not known uh, those things. Um, but it was the, it was, the, I think the first conscious moment where it sunk in that people were going to assume and think things about me based on my, this identity that really was not at all what I understood, uh, about my identity. You know, I've never heard that noise. My family's never made that noise, never heard that in my community. At this point in my life, I've now been all over the world in First Nations communities all over the world, never heard that once. So, and yet for those kids, and I I think it's important as I write in the book, no one stopped this. Uh, No adult at the time went, oh, that's terrible. My parents were likely at the game. They never brought it up. Like it was not something they really talked about in fact my grandmother um uh who is norma miyawasagi uh who's you know where my anishinaabe uh, roots come from she might have been at that game it never came up which i grant is is a sort of some maybe something of the time um because when this did happen recently as i also write in the book there was a a hockey game a hockey tournament in 2018 when a, a team called the first nations elites were playing in uh, quebec and when they took the ice, they heard the exact same sound I would have heard more than 30 years uh, previous. This time, though, it became a national news story. People did say things. The parents of the players spoke out. So that was certainly a difference. But the idea that, um, A, it was for some an acceptable noise to be made, but also that that still may have been all they knew of Indigenous People, because one of the things that sticks out to me is here the kids were making this noise at me. Maybe the only thing they actually thought they knew about Indigenous people. And yet here was a living, breathing Indigenous person in the game with them that they could have, you know, asked if about or done anything, recognize that I had never made that noise uh, around them. Um, but they didn't. And so I think I led the book because. It was a, a moment that I returned to. It's I don't remember anything of those games, but I do remember that sound, uh, which I think is important for people to realize these aren't inconsequential things that happen to people. Those, those schoolyard things can be something that sticks with you 40 years later. It can still be what you actually remember of your childhood is that, not all of the other good stuff, that it's still happening. And that to me suggests there's still a gap in knowledge and understanding, despite the fact that now I think we know it's unacceptable for the most part. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And all of that, I think, um, 
is a, a good way to start, I think, the story that follows about where I've come from and how that has one experience has informed so much of the work that I've done and the life that I've ultimately led. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm kind of wrestling with whether I, whether or not to take this interview in a, in a direction that I don't uh, didn't plan on. But it's interesting, Jesse, you have my full attention while you're while you're describing this experience that you had as a child. And you're talking about how a lot of these kids at this ball diamond uh, maybe even weren't acting. I'm not giving them a pass at all. This isn't a they were trying good things at residential schools comment at all. Um, But I don't think that 10 year olds were acting out of malice, out of a desire to scar a young boy uh, for the remainder of his life. But you know what I'm thinking of as well? I'm thinking of a guy, uh, a kid by the name of Bo. And I'll leave it at his first name. And I I attended a, a private school. Uh, for my for my elementary and junior high school in southeast Calgary in an affluent neighborhood and and quite frankly my interactions with people of color uh, my interactions with people outside the gender spectrum my people quite frankly that weren't evangelical Christians uh, my experience interacting with people that were secular uh, was very limited but there was this one kid an indigenous kid by the name of Bo uh, who attended our school and his life was not easy and we knew that. And a lot of kids used that as a jumping off point to bully him because his life was not easy. And he was involved in the care system. And uh, I remember Bo as being defiant. And it dawned on me in later years that he was not defiant. Uh, He was summoning up the courage to show up every day. And um, I am personally and have been on a journey um, just appalled at how we treated him And um, I was part of the problem and uh, as many kids were. And so when we hear stories like this, when you're sharing this experience at the ball diamond, I'm having this visceral memory of in and in particular of a couple occasions specifically that I would do anything to change. And I've actually looked Bo up in subsequent years and he's not on social media and uh, maybe the universe will will maybe this interview will find him i don't know i would love to reconnect with him i would love to make things right um in a way maybe it's small r or maybe it's big r i would love to personally reconcile with Bo, um and indicate how much respect i have for the fact that he just showed up to school uh for years and um i don't even know what the point of me this almost feels like a cathartic exercise to be talking to you uh, about yeah. this Jesse but I wonder like reconciliation I guess in some circumstances starts at a personal level and I guess we can talk as well about what it means for the provincial and federal governments and the church and society writ large but where do you think people's journeys need to start oh I think they can only really start at the personal uh, level and I appreciate your your comments I, I likewise went to a private school in a very affluent neighborhood in uh, in Toronto, I think I'm I'm still to this day the only First Nations kid to have ever attended uh, that school, um, and it was not easy. And uh, it, releasing the book has been interesting because I've had some old classmates reach out who I have not spoken to in many many years to express similar thoughts to what you're uh, expressing. And that's been a complex thing to deal with because I'm, I wasn't, you know, my, the intention of the book and the intention of my work is not to make people feel guilty or to, I wasn't looking, I guess the point is Ryan, I wasn't looking for my old 
schoolmates to come forward with these mea culpas about how they could have been better or could have, you know, because for me, and, and I think this is, this is both true of, of some of these personal reconciliations, but also true of the sort of more larger framing of it, which is um, I've reconciled that already. And I, and I sort of didn't need the other person to, to do that. Mm. And it's one of the things with reconciliation, especially when it comes to indigenous peoples and our existence, our continued existence on our homelands that are now occupied by, by this other country um, is that reconciliation, even the, the big one, the one writ large, um, indigenous people are already experts at it. Uh, we don't, it's actually not for us uh, as a community. Cause again, and one of the th things I would I would stress is that we can't separate the word, the physical word reconciliation from truth. They always have to be together because if we do that, you might question what it is we're actually reconciling. And we have to remember what we're reconciling is the truth. And if we acknowledge that, then the point is, well, what new truths are Indigenous people having to reconcile in this moment? I don't think any. These are the truths we've been saying for many, many years at this point. So it's not on us to reconcile. This, this is a period for us to heal, for us to heal, recover, regain, rebuild. Um, and that sort of exists whether Canada or Canadians want to participate or not, because um, that isn't the reconciliation process. That's the healing process. And we're going we're gonna to do that. Uh, as communities. Now, it would be beneficial um, to us, but I would suggest perhaps more so to Canada and Canadians if they did participate, both in allowing us to heal, but also engaging in the work that they have to do, which is the actual reconciliation part. And even before we get to that part, I still think there's a lot of truths that have to be um, I'm not so much told. I think a lot of them have been told. Like even the, you know, I hear a lot of, I've had a lot of conversations about people about um, what they describe as the discoveries of the mass graves or the graveyards at the yeah. residential schools. But of course, they're not discoveries yeah. for our communities, Ryan. We, we've, we've always known that they were there. The schools my family went to in Spanish Ontario, there was, a, they were built with a graveyard there. Everyone's always known. Uh it was there. So not surprising for us. So again, it's the, I think the truths have been told for a long time, but there's always two elements true to truth. There's the telling of it. Then there's the accepting of it. And I often relate these two processes. Um, remind there's a, to the process that many people are familiar with around grieving. And if you remember the, the sort, I think it's the seven stages of grief the last one is acceptance, which is the same with truth, which is that, and, and for many hearing these truths will trigger a grieving process. Mm. And that's why acceptance aligns because I understand for Canadians, you're going to grieve a lot of things. Like as we have grieved, you're going to grieve the children. You're going to grieve not knowing you're going to be feel guilty and shame and anger and all those other stages, right. Of, of grief denial. We've certainly gone through that stage in Canada, right. You're going to go through all of that. Cause this, it turns out 
some of the things you're told or believed or thought were true just weren't really in the fullness. And again, I think a lot of our communities understand that because again, we've been grieving these truths for a long time. So we have an advantage around that. Um, our patience though, tends to, I think what you're, what you, the tension that you get around say a book called unreconciled or other indigenous people pushing back is that at what point do we have to say like um, that accepting of the truth, that the delay of it, that the inability to accept starts to become a strategic thing to never get to the reconciliation and, and not only to get to the reconciliation, Ryan, but I would increasingly, I increasingly say that there's actually another step that we're also missing, which is if we consider reconciliation, the sort of um, the idea that we'll, figure out how to have a, a working relationship among our communities on these shared lands. Well, before we get there, I think there's the accepting of the truth. And then considering the depth of harm done, um, I think there's another phase where if you think about even your personal relationship, when someone has done real harm to you, um, is it just enough that they accept that they did the harm and is it just enough that they go and that they then say, let's move on or do amends have to be made? Well, let me ask you this because there, there's yeah. a really interesting question and, and it, it has a bit of uh, religious phraseology uh, sure. here from Sandra, but I think that she asks the direct question that you're teeing up right now, which is uh, Sandra says confession is good, but what's the penance? Well, and, and I wouldn't frame it uh, necessarily. I'm not a religious uh, person, uh, Ryan, as you might uh, imagine, for various reasons, my family decided not to really keep engaging with the church after a certain uh, period. Um, but um, and penance to me has always felt a little too close to punishment. Mm. And I'm not sure that's exactly what I mean. What I mean is restitution or as some of my cousins, my black cousins would say, reparations. Yeah. Um, I mean that some, before we can really talk about how we move forward, we may have to be on the same ground. And that's going to take some effort. And the way I tend to frame it, and I realize that it's somewhat daunting for people, but I, 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 I just think it's true, which is what we need to see is that Canada as a state needs to invest in the health uh, and, and, and success of indigenous communities and lives with the same vigor and abundance at which they took those things away. And if we were to actually measure the amount of resources, both human and monetary, that the Canadian, Canada as a country has invested to deprive Indigenous people of their family, of their community, of their land, of their language, of their culture. If we think of the effort, and there's literally been careers made doing this. There are careers being made doing this right now. Um, cottage country, you know, there, there's a whole cottage industry, quite literally, I mean that, um, in taking all of these things from Indigenous people. Like, and that's been sustained over not just a single government, every government since Canada began, has been engaged in this exact activity. 
Well, so that's 154 years minimum uh, of multi-billion dollar investment. That's a lot. That's why this question is so foundational, right? Because unfortunately for Canada, it got off while it wanted to get off on a right foot or it's always painted that it got off on the right foot. It didn't. It got off on the wrong foot. And until we correct that, it's going to be tough. And part of that correction is a return of, of, as so many of us say, we need everything that was taken to be returned. That's a lot. And that's going to take a lot of time, but that's probably what we have to look at. And, and I, I think it's important for your audience to understand that isn't really a threat to Canada as it is like that won't deprive anyone in Canada of much of anything. Um, in fact, what we, what we have to switch, I think is the historic notion. And this is true of all um, of the children states of, of colonialism, which is they have all historically and to modern day viewed the ongoing existence of indigenous people as threatening to their existence. Mm. And that's what we have to flip is to understand that it's the exact opposite, that the success of these, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, settler states or colonial offspring states, whatever it is, the success of them is, is actually coming to grips with the first peoples and actually organizing a proper uh, relationship. It's that that will actually legitimize them. It's the other thing that makes them illegitimate. And that's the struggle for Canada and, and folks to understand is we have to do the exact opposite of what we've been doing. And that's tough. But I think the, the good news is our communities are healing. The children at these schools are returning now because our communities are ready for it. It's not has nothing to do with whether Canada's ready for it, because clearly Canada isn't. But our communities are. And we should take tremendous strength from that because we're still here. We're rebuilding and we will gain back everything, whether Canada comes along or not. I just think it's in Canada's best interest to come along. Hmm. We had a an amazing conversation just a few days ago with Michelle Robinson. She uh, she hosts a podcast called Native Calgarian and uh, a great name. And we were talking to her about, uh, you know, land acknowledgments in particular. But of course, the conversation moved on from there. And, and she touched on a little bit on the land back movement and and what she thought could be meaningful and doable. Uh, you might call it actionable um, ideas, including uh, perhaps crown land. She's you know, talked about hundreds of thousands of acres. I mean, just vast amounts of, of, of uh, crown owned property that, that could be part of uh, initiatives in the context of reconciliation. We've had conversations on the show about um, First Nations investing in uh, projects in particular, a, a new uh, power plant. It's it's a natural gas uh, or a really neat initiative coming up, uh, you know, here in, in Treaty 6 land and. You know, we've we've learned a little bit more about some some water projects in some First Nations. Obviously, a lot of work to be done, uh, but some work has been happening. There's a ton of talk in Alberta. It, it, it almost I just feel like the, the energy leaves my body when I acknowledge it. But around Alberta's curriculum rewrite now, but I know that it's on people's radar. I mean, these you know we we talk about we talked to the chief of uh, Delorme of Cowess's uh, First Nation. He talked about sovereignty when it comes to uh, child and family services, and obviously there are uh, you know within the justice system. There are some contexts to explore there. These are examples, I think, of, of when you ask Canadians or indigenous people in Canada about what reconciliation might look like or, or what an indicator of of an appetite or a willingness to move toward meaningful reconciliation looks like. Um, these are oftentimes bullet points on the list. 
Um, is there something in particular that you think provincial governments or in particular this federal government uh, could do right now without delay that you would look at and say, now we're talking? Well, I mean, it's, I would actually... I think some of the things I would ask, I would love to see is what they could stop doing ah. <laughs> would be a place to actually uh, start. I mean, uh, I mean, look what's going on in Ferry Creek, uh, for example. Um, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I know the, the prime minister often talks about how they're not, they're not in court against indigenous children, but they are in court against the representatives of indigenous children. So I don't know the game of semantics that we, we really play on that. Like there's some things that they could just stop uh, doing altogether. Um, Crown land, I think is a good one, you know, cause it's not a real thing. Crown land, like that's crown. The crown does not own any of that land. That's a myth that's made up. Uh, so like, that's just territory. That's, probably not really Canada for the most part. Um, so like for sure you could look at some of those uh, sorts of things. Um, I, you know, I think the biggest for me, I think it's key to understand that indigenous people are not equity seeking, they're sovereignty seeking. So how can we start to imagine what that actually looks like in institutions and, and while we're, we're probably not at the place where we can actually have a discussion around real sovereignty for our, our nations or a return to that at this moment, I think we can discuss how we can get more self-determination around the decisions made for our communities into our hands and allow for us to start to, because again, what I would say is our communities are recovering and rebuilding, and that is because we're doing it. That has nothing to do with because there was a government program set up to help us do it. That's not what's happened at all. We're doing it outside of those things. So um, while we have seen some gains around government policy and, and programs, they're, you know, small potatoes in terms of the larger uh, issues. Um, but I, I would love to see them stop doing things. I mean, one thing right off the bat is uh, given what we're seeing in Ferry Creek and what we've seen all over the place, it is far beyond time that we have a real discussion about what exactly is the point of the RCMP. Uh, and, and is it really at all that different from when the RCMP was established as an armed force to control Indigenous people? That was the goal of the RCMP when it was established. And I think, Ryan, in 2021, is there another thing that it does other than that exact same thing in like a hundred and whatever years later, that's not good. Like that's basically at this point, the RCMP is less a police force, I think for our communities and more an army, a military force that comes into our territories. And we, I would really love the government to think about how we could reinvest some of the money it currently spends on the RCMP and frankly, maybe our military as well, which has largely been used to further uh, global imperialist uh, actions. Um, we cannot do that. Uh, we could decide to do other things uh, with all of those resources. And yet we give billions of dollars to the RCMP and the money every single budget. And I think it is far beyond time for Canadians to hear our communities say, we should question that because when the RCMP comes in and abuses Indigenous protesters, they are doing it on your behalf. 
And are Canadians really comfortable with a paramilitary force invading non-ceded territory to exert control? That is, well, you could talk what that would be viewed on, on the international level, how that might be viewed. We're so grateful for your time, uh, Jesse, and uh, I want to thank you for for staying with us here and uh, well past the time that we asked you to stay. It is I, I, Let me ask you in closing, do you have confidence that the 10-year-old kid, Indigenous kid that's standing over home plate at, at the baseball game today is going to have a different experience than you did, say, 30 years ago? I mean, do you see signs that somebody might speak up? Do you see, are, are, are you encouraged at all? By any progress? Sorry, I, my phone went off and I didn't want to give okay. you some weird audio. Okay. Um, I do. And it's because I get to spend, I have two teenagers, Anishinaabe teenagers. Uh, I get to talk to youth. I see how they're approaching it, not just indigenous youth, but also you, you know, the young people that they're around. And um, so many of the things, you know, I watched your very fascinating conversation with Florence mm. uh, before before I came on, uh, Ryan. And, um, you know, I, I will for so many for the kids, like so many of the issues that we're debating are settled for them, like like trans issues. They're sort of not having those discussions like we are. And so like we're we sound like dinosaurs to them. Like like when we talk about reconciliation and these things, like they're so ahead of us in terms of their thinking and where they're going. So I have extraordinary confidence. Um, what I worry about is that we're giving them a lot to deal with because uh, they've got the collapsing planet and all this sort of other stuff yeah. to worry about that. We still have an obligation while, while you and I are our age to help a little bit, you know, to, to at least try, cause we've, we've failed them. And one of the things I often uh, say to people is like these kids, like I know my kids, they're going to ask me mm -hmm. what I did about a whole bunch of stuff. And they're going to ask I suspect fairly soon and they're going to want to know what I did. And I've been working really hard to make sure I have an answer for those kids. And I, I guess I would urge everyone that if we also figure out that we are all going to have the answer to our own children about what we have done and what we didn't do, given what we know that if we all actually start working now to have those answers for them, they will be in a much better spot. There's some they may not have to ask because maybe we'll have proven that we've done. And I think that's what we should, we should take the energy that they're showing us that they're, that they're giving and we should feed off it and say, right. Cause everything we're doing is for them anyway. So let's make sure that they've, that we make it easier for them. And I have just look at what's going on with indigenous people in, in what is currently called Canada, despite everything, despite all the horrors, Ryan, you and I could go through in a, a day, we're flourishing. We're, we're, so, we're getting back so much of what was taken. That should give us the strength to know it's, it's all coming back and, and we just have to play our, our part in it. And I often also keep center that my ancestors wanted Canada to work. They didn't uh, they embraced the newcomers. 
They signed the treaties thinking that this could work, that they knew that this land was abundant, that it could support as long as we live in balance in it with it, it could support all of us. I want to honor that as well. So I haven't given up on Canada despite everything. And, and I think Canadians should actually know that indigenous people, we've given everything to this country, literally everything. We're still here for it, you, but we need, there needs to be, if you want a relationship, there needs to be a meeting somewhere so we can figure out how to, how to do that. That's the process we're in. We can do it. Thank you, Ryan, so much for having me. I appreciate the conversations you're hosting on the show, the way your, your audience is interacting with it. Thank you so much for, for doing it. Uh, miigwech, 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 uh, chi miigwech. So honored to have you here and uh, so grateful for your perspective. Uh, Jesse Wente's new book, uh, Unreconciled, Family Truth and Indigenous Resistance, already a national bestseller. Uh, you can find it anywhere you get great books. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. I'm just sitting here. I'm like scribbling and people can probably see if you're watching on YouTube as opposed to the podcast. I'm just like scribbling notes, scribbling notes for my own purposes. I mean, we are not equity seeking. We are sovereignty seeking. That was like, boom. That to me is like, that's a billboard. That's a T-shirt. Put that on a T-shirt. That's like the that's like the, the thing you do. These a buddy of mine always says, although he actually goes out and does it. He gets like he gets T-shirts stamped. Sometimes he just does a run of one, but something resonates with him. He puts it on a T-shirt and wears it around. I love it. We're not equity seeking. We're sovereignty seeking. If you missed our conversation with Eric Denhoff yesterday, by the way, about Ferry Creek, I encourage you to check it out. And we want to let you know that uh, Brandy Morin, uh, a journalist who is at Ferry Creek, has been in touch with us. We were hoping to have her on today. You know what the reality is out there? Just to pull back the curtain here and let everybody know is that they're having really spotty cell signal out there and and for brandy and for other journalists out there there's oftentimes they'll sort of at the end of the day go to file a story or go to upload the content that they've been creating or that they've been recording and and uh, so we're working with brandy uh we're going to get her on the show as soon as possible and uh, you can in the meantime can follow her on instagram and on twitter and see what she's reporting from fairy creek and speaking of the rcmp this has absolutely nothing to well i don't know maybe it does but with what jesse was just talking about did you see this story out of alberta you see that the the RCMP union, all this talk about a, a provincial police force in Alberta. This is Jason Kenney's idea. Let me remind everybody he didn't campaign on that. He wanted to remind everybody that Rachel Notley didn't campaign on certain things. Nowhere in the UCP platform was a provincial police force. I digress. The RCMP union, this reported by the Edmonton Journal, has applied to trademark a bunch of potential names for a provincial police service. So the RCMP union has trademarked Alberta Police Force, Alberta Police Department, and Alberta Provincial Police, the APP, uh, the union admitting it is intended to be a roadblock. Pretty interesting. Okay, that was that was my next question. I was like, okay, so why would they do that? And I guess that's exactly, you know, yeah. when someone's website, they don't renew it. You, you go in there and you try yeah. to get it. Well, the, and, the, and, and quite <laughs> frankly, as is the job of a union hmm. uh, or as is one of the jobs of a union, in theory, anyway, is to protect the job security of its members. And so why in the hell would the RCMP want to see 
you know, 200 plus million dollars pulled out of its annual budget to be diverted to a provincial police force. Uh, it wouldn't is the short answer. So that was an interesting story. It's one that we're keeping an eye on. Sometimes we may not do a full 20 or 30 minute interview on something, but we want to let you know that it's on our radar and it is a story that we're following. Gosh, I knew Jesse went. He was going to be impressive, but I appreciate that. I appreciate his availability. I promised I was going to read five emails today, didn't I? And I've still got four in front of me. And we have a guest locked and loaded, ready to go in the bullpen right now. And we want to recognize a few of our sponsors and partners that make these conversations possible. So today's show might just have to run another three hours, I guess, is what I'm getting at. But why don't we start uh, by mentioning our Real Talk Wine of the Month. I've been telling you about La Crema and how excited we are to partner with La Crema. They've got some new additions to their lineup. They've got this Russian River Chardonnay that everybody's talking about. And then their their Pinot Noir, their single vineyard Pinot Noir, which is certainly worth checking out. Well, it prompted a tweet from a real talker. We love this from Issue. Issue said, Jespo, La Crema is like one of my top five wines. My dad, who's a non-expert wine expert, I know a bunch of those. My dad, I think I might be one. Before we started evolving the language, you may have referred to us as winos, but we're not. We're non-expert wine experts. And so Issue said that my dad, who's a non-expert wine expert, introduced me to it more than 15 years ago. You know, someone's going to email me about saying wino on the air. More than 15 years ago, for years after he passed, I would buy a bottle. I would make one of my dad's favorite meals. I would celebrate his life and his love for me on his birthday. And so Issue said, that's a great pick for the first ever Real Talk Wine of the Month. Well, guess what? The team at La Crema saw that. And Issue doesn't know this yet, but they're sending Issue some wine. So now don't come at me with a whole bunch of tweets about La Crema wine expecting to see a box delivered straight to your door. But I thought that was pretty sweet. I thought that was pretty cool. They were moved by it, this vineyard. And then I'm at Sherbrooke Liquor the other day, which is just a fantastic store. And what do I see on the shelf? But that La Crema Chardonnay and then that beautiful Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir that I absolutely love. And not because I was in there and not because it's the real talk wine of the month, but they had the hidden gem sign right there. They noted it. Their staff is a hidden gem. You can find La Crema wherever you buy fine wines, whether it's Sherbrooke, Costco, Wine and Beyond has it. If you don't see it in your store, ask for it. La Crema has our stamp of approval. We also wanted to remind you how proud we are to partner with the team at Westworld Computers. I was in there just a couple of days ago talking to Daryl. Daryl's dad started the business 40, I think it's 41 years ago now. Family owned, independently owned the entire time. Your Apple experts. Every time I go in there, I get nervous because my credit card starts. It's weird. It starts. It's like it's it's like spend me. It's like rack me up. I'm looking around and I'm and I'm I have the iPhone 12, but the 13 is in now. So I'm like, well, who needs this lousy 12? And I don't have a Series 7 Apple Watch, so I probably need to get one of those, right? And uh, well, anyway, this is how my mind works. Luckily, I escaped unscathed, walking out with just what I needed, in part because that's what their team is so great at. But you got to, you know, they'll upsell you too if you're looking for a reason to spend a few bucks. All the cool new stuff is in there. 
including that new generation, that that sixth generation iPad, and of course, the MacBook Pros that everybody's buzzing about these days. You can shop online, you can book service appointments online, or you can visit them in person. All of the information at westworld.ca. We're going to talk about kids and finances in just a second, but but let's get to a couple of emails. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. I'm so excited to officially announce something uh, coming up in November. Uh, so I'll do an unofficial announcement right now. <laughs> this is the unofficial announcement of an official announcement coming up on November 1st. We Ooh. have we have new and Sam and Sarah don't even know this yet. We have now received in-house at least to our shipping department based out of beautiful Calgary, Alberta, new second gen real talk mugs. Ooh. And they are not they are not the fantastic ceramic diner mugs that you see Sarah Sam and I drinking out of on the show here. They're a new sexy design. They're proven to make your coffee t- taste 44% better. Hmm. This according to 4 out of 5 coffee roasters. And <laughs> Starting in November, you're ridiculous. We will be awarding. Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> the real talk email of the month. Ooh. And every month, when an email really resonates, we'll set it aside. And at the end of that month, we will select the real talk email of the month. And one of you real talkers will receive an official real talk mug in the mail. And we're really excited about this. That's starting in November. Mug mail. Unfortunately, Kim's email will not qualify. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to read it today. Kim says, uh, Jespo, um, I was surprised to hear you talk about your firing from the radio station for the first time on Tuesday. I, I kind of laid it out on Tuesday. And uh, it seems that tens of thousands of people were pretty chuffed about it. And we're excited to see how that episode It's It's funny, you know, it's funny how some episodes really take off. And Kim says, with you talking about your firing and then and then you, you interviewed Eddie Steele, who got fired from the Edmonton Elks broadcast, the CFL broadcast last week. Um, I have to wonder how unbiased these large media conglomerates are. Kim says, I feel that the traditional media is influenced by corporations and political entities to an extent that the average listener, the average viewer is totally unaware. And it's sad, really, because media should be independent and unbiased. And Kim says, and this is why podcasts like Real Talk will become more and more and more popular and well-respected. Kim says, maybe this is something to delve into a little bit more. Kim says, have a wonderful Mike Nickel free day. Oh, thank you, Kim. I do feel like corporate influence on shows is really deplorable. And if you do, too, send us an email that I can include in Trash Talk presented by Local Waste Service. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, we have sponsors, too. But not once has a sponsor killed content. And I'll say that with my hand on whatever you want me to swear on. It's not how we roll. And our sponsors know that's not what we signed up for. And so that's something, Kim, that we continue to commit to. And I appreciate you recognizing it. How about this one from Greg? Greg doesn't like me very much. He said, uh, Jesper, I just listened. He didn't call me Jesper. He says, Mr. Jesperson. But it felt a little pretentious. But that's what he said. Typically, if somebody says, Mr. Jesperson, they're about to tell me that I have changed their life in the great way or they think that I am the dumbest mother. He says, I just listened to a portion of your interview with the new mayor of Calgary, Jody Gondek, and I couldn't quite get as excited about it as you were trying to display. What? You mean just because I had an exclusive the day after the municipal election with the mayors of both Calgary and Edmonton? Greg says, sorry, but I came away from it feeling like it was a huge pile of bullshit. 
And what really capped it off for me was that piece, that bit about the mayor's top priority being climate change and the need to initiate a climate emergency and how excited that you and apparently one of your listeners were. And then in the next breath, you're pushing and totally excited about like kind of like a young teenage schoolgirl being so excited about her new pink dress. Hoyles loves that comment. Flying to California for a holiday. I guess flying is not a climate change issue. They must use pixie dust to power those machines. Greg says, I guess whatever fits the bullshit narrative that's being taunted these days. Anyway, continue on, Jesperson. But I truly hope that there are some people out there that can still think for themselves that aren't just sheep that mindlessly follow along with what I just heard come out of the new mayor's mouth and yours. Regards, Greg. Regards right back at you, Greg. And I appreciate you listening to the interview in all sincerity. I don't know if I was, did I get super excited about Jody Gondek talking about declaring a climate climate emergency? I asked her, if you missed the interview, um, encourage you to check it out for starters. Uh, both our interviews with mayors-elect uh, Gondek and Sohi. I think I was somewhat um, surprised. I think, my, I think my impression when I said, what's your first order of business? What's the first thing you're going to tackle? I mean, aside from the resignation of Councillor Sean Chu, which is another story we're following. Unbelievable. Did you see this? The revelation that, that surfaced just last night turns out that in 2008, uh, police were also called to an incident where Councillor Chu was in a domestic dispute with his wife, a firearm involved. And this is getting worse and worse for this guy. Former wife. Former wife. Thanks. I say it's getting worse for this guy. It's probably worse for the women that he's been abusing, but allegedly. Uh, but uh, I mean, that's 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 story we're keeping an eye on. The guy's got to go. I mean, you got to go right now. And so we're keeping an eye on that. But I think when 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 count, when uh, Mayor Elect Gondek, former counselor, said uh, declaring a climate emergency is their first order of business, I think my response was like, "Huh? Like, hmm? Like that's pretty notable." especially for the mayor of a city that's been, you know, with apologies to my my hometown and the hundreds of thousands of people that do not work in oil and gas. Cal- Calgary certainly has benefited from oil and gas. It's been Canada's oil and gas headquarters uh, since, you know, arguably the 1940s and certainly the 1970s. So I think that I was uh, impacted by her comment. The stuff about tying this to whether or not you can fly to California if you're concerned about the planet. Uh, these are the kinds of lazy arguments that people take. I mean, you know, Greg's you know, accusing me and the mayor and you real talkers of being sheep that just believe whatever they heard. If you come across somebody that believes that there are only two choices, hmm. right? Care about the planet or, you know, or whatever else, everything else is. In other words, if somebody says to you, uh, oh, you're driving a car to work. Oh, you're heating your home this winter. Oh, I thought that there was climate change. That is a lazy, that, that's a disingenuous, that's a red herring laden argument. And it doesn't mean that we don't take these points into consideration. Like, for example, Greg, your comment may prompt some people to say, hey, as a family, as an exercise, as a challenge, why don't we try to have a carbon neutral summer vacation? What might that look like? And then you get the kids all strategizing about it. Scientifically, how could we decrease our footprint? Corporations are taking on things like carbon credits 
I mean, even for us with our new studio, we're consulting with an engineer about how we as a show can pursue a carbon neutral status. Now, of course, someone like Greg may call that virtue signaling. But for people like us, we want to say we're in a position to influence and we're in a position where I think we we represent a certain perspective that is a reasonable, measured, evidence-fueled conversation or platform that tries to wrestle with and ultimately address some of the challenges that are facing us, like it or not. Ken Bosenkul, who's been on the show before, he was a, a strategist for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He's a conservative commentator uh, in Canada. He was on about, I guess it was uh, just after the federal election with Max Fawcett. The two of them came on and locked horns a little bit, although they played way nicer than I thought they would. Didn't you think, Sam? I remember you made a comment about that. Yeah, it was the nicest I've ever seen Bosenkul and Fawcett be to each other. Yeah, because they're really gnarly. Dude. I mean, they're respectful on Twitter. They, but they, they share barbs a lot. They do. Oh, yeah. It's like spy versus spy for anybody that used to read Mad Magazine. It's like that's what those two are but anyway i saw ken bosenkul he said you know listening to mayor-elect gondek on jespo thank you ken i appreciate it he said she just said her first order of business as mayor of calgary will be to declare a climate emergency and then ken just said i'm just gonna leave that there he just left it without comment it was the no comment comment which is still a comment like how nonverbal communication is still communication but we don't need to get into that and non-wine experts are the expert. non-wine expert wine experts yeah. are the true wine experts correct or at least also wine experts no offense to the sommeliers <laughs> but ken's tweet just went nuts like thousands of people by way of like retweet comment engaged with that tweet it was a significant moment but that's the point you think mayor gondek doesn't acknowledge that it's going to be a significant moment when the mayor of freaking calgary declares a climate emergency the question is what does it mean what does it do to the business community do investors get skittish that's why i went hmm when she said it and we'll see what happens in the days to come let's get to our next guest we know that there's a problem with financial literacy whether it's us whether it's the generation before us or whether it's the generation of future movers and shakers, do we really understand our finances and the implications of taking them seriously or not? I think the answer is no. But let's find out what our expert guest will say. Pam Leonage is the co-founder of Money Prep. Uh, she's got a 25-year background in financial services. She's also a mother of four. Um, Pam's company has just developed a new video game app to teach kids about money management. You can find it in the App Store, Google Play, anywhere you get your apps. It's called Money Prep. Pam's making a Real Talk debut this morning. It's so good to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate the time. When we were uh, teeing up your uh, appearance here on the show about an hour and a half ago, I said uh, she's got a 25-year background in financial services. And then I said, and maybe more significantly, She's a mother of four. It seems to me like I, I, I'm picturing Lady Justice right now with the two scales. And when it comes to finan totally. financial literacy, you care for more than one reason. Yes, that's exactly it. My company is kind of the convergence of those both of those worlds, being a being a lender and a, and a retail banker and also being a parent and raising financially responsible kids. So how did you um, as a mom uh, out of the gates uh, decide to or have an influence on how your kids 
understand finances. Yep. I have an influence on them um, primarily because of my lending background. So when I was in the banking system and saw clients coming in all the time from the 18 to 25 year old age range, the common situation that I was fixing for them stemmed from a mismanagement of money. So it all comes back down to budgeting and understanding those basics of of how to manage your finances, how to navigate them, understanding credit and how it works. And if kids don't learn that early enough, um, then it can become a problem for them as young adults. So that's kind of the the genesis of, of what we're building. And as a parent, why I started teaching my kids um, from early ages, ages of five and six, because that's, you know, the time to start when they have the longest runway to really form those smart money habits. Can we talk about, because I know that, I, I mean, we know for a fact that there are, uh, you know, uh, parents that are expecting that are members mm-hmm. of our audience, there are parents of young kids, mm-hmm. there are parents of teens, of course. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, the lessons in financial literacy can continue and many times often begin in our adult <laughs> years. But can, can we do sort of a can we do like a zero to six, a six to 12, a 12 to 18 kind of journey through what you think need to be the, uh, you know, the, the pillars of financial literacy? Yep. The, the basics of uh, starting from the beginning are framing discussions about money around where the kids are at. So in elementary, you know, the age five to 12 ish, um, you ask a young child, what is money for? Their answer is always, you need it to buy stuff, right? So their framework around money is around transactions and what you need it for. So that's what I would say for that age range is the place to start when you're opening the discussions, talking to them about um, how to make the right decision? What do you need to think about? Um, how do you make the choice? What habits do you really want to start instilling early um, so that they get to a point where they can start making some independent choices? And making mistakes is totally fine. That's part of learning. And it's probably better to make fiscal mistakes when you're, you know, in elementary than when you're in a young adult. <laughs> so uh, non-catastrophic failures. So um, that's what I would start with when they're young. And as they grow older, then you can get a little bit deeper into the meaning of money and and how to navigate and and the obligations surrounding it. You know, like you get into the teen years and now they're starting to think about independent living and what do I need for school? And so at that point, you can get a little bit deeper and talk to them more about credit cards, how to manage them, why they're important. Because, uh, you know, I remember going into university and not having any discussions in the house, in the, in the family home about money and how to manage it. And there's tables of credit card applications, right? And these young kids are coming in there or the 18, 19, and they're picking up these credit card applications, not understanding really how to use them and how to manage them properly. And then that can lead to, uh, you know, future consequences for them borrowing borrowing power and things like that if they if they start messing up. So if you can introduce those kind of management um, techniques and skills a little bit earlier than you know just a webinar or a, or a few exercises in high school, then they're going to be much better off when they actually enter the real world. The the idea around credit cards, you're so right. I mean, you know, yeah. people people apply. Uh, I mean, in university, there are all these hooks yeah. 
you know, yeah, where they'll get totally. you. And, and, and all of a sudden for somebody, it might be a credit card debt of 750 or a thousand dollars that, that mm-hmm. it becomes this pervasive debt that hangs over their head. Um, for yeah. some people, it might be 15 or $20,000 and it becomes something that they can't manage. So then in some circumstances, you know, and I wanted to circle back to a word you used. You said, you know, you've been in the lending industry. We oftentimes mm-hmm. hear that phrase, the predatory lenders. Yeah, yeah. Right? These high interest lenders. And there's been some interesting developments with regards to different levels of government and how they're approaching that and what the how the general public feels about the so-called predatory lenders. Does the lending yeah. industry, I mean, let's acknowledge that without lending, most people wouldn't be able to even consider have a house, yep. have a house yep. or have a car or whatever, start up a business, quite frankly. Yep. Uh, yep. So d- does the lending lending industry have a bad name or does the lending industry maybe in a more focused question have an obligation uh, to help educate their customers? Absolutely. I think they do have a corporate responsibility to help um, steer their clients in the right direction. But the the idea of lending being a bad word is um, it's a difficult one because really, like you said, it's it's not a bad word. It's something that everybody, almost everybody uh, uses in their life to get to their big goals. So it's just a matter of um, framing it differently so that people don't view lending or their lender or, uh, you know, whoever they're going to to borrow from as the big bad, um, you know, the big bad lender. It's, it's that's who's going to help me get to where I want to go. When you talk about how to reach kids, and, mm-hmm. and obviously, I think that almost with anything in life, I mean, there will be obvious exceptions, but like if you learn something young, I think of people that under, that can speak a second or a third or a fifth language and you go, how do you possibly do that? They go, well, I started young and it's just like not a thing. Kids can just do mm-hmm. that. There's this ability, uh, the way that their minds work. Now, when you were putting together money prep and people can check it out, by the way, at moneyprep.com. And again, you can find this. It's like a video game take on understanding mm-hmm. money you can download it on the on the app store get it on google play what did you tap into with regards to the the psyche of the average kid or how a kid's mind works to drive home the most important points yep this this comes from also being a parent <laughs> um and being in the classroom so when i started the program uh i did it workshop based so i was going into the classrooms i was doing a lot of kind of fun activities and games with the kids in person And, um, you know, we kind of quickly realized that if I want to reach thousands of kids out there, there's only one of me and, um, you know, carbon copying isn't isn't, uh, an option right now. So let's go digital. And the, the idea was we know that kids love tech. We know that they love to learn that way. So we're meeting them where they're at. And we took the, the concepts of what we wanted to teach and the game, the gamified uh, versions of that that I was doing in the class and we put it online. And so it's getting a, a lot of traction because that's, that's, that's the way kids are learning. And especially with, uh, with um, the, the boom of online learning now, uh, you might have heard of this thing called the pandemic and, you know, teachers and parents are all looking for resources um, online and digitally. So um, that has also helped us to, to connect with those kids um, in a way that they enjoy and in a way that they can actually gain some valuable knowledge from. 
Pam, it's interesting. You talk to different people about their upbringings and, and uh, some people would have no idea how much mom or dad makes, no yep. idea what parents paid for the house, no idea what they owe on the house, no idea what their credit card balance is. And then other families, there's, you know, probably the mail gets opened from Visa and it goes on the table and everybody can see where the money is or how deep the debt is or whatever the case is. Do you have a, a personal opinion or is it family by family on talking about I mean, I would imagine a lot of parents want to sort of insulate their children from feeling any sort of stress. That's probably one of the biggest reasons why you don't talk about money in front of the kids. But is that an old thing? Is that old school thinking? Well, that's definitely a generational thing. I mean, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I didn't grow up with uh, with it being talked about in the house. Not really. And I know my parents didn't grow grow up with it being talked about in the house. Um, But I think that is changing. Um, and I think it and I think it needs to change. You know, it's OK to to share the good, the bad and the ugly of of your situation so that the kids can learn from it, because sometimes the insulation doesn't help. You know, I understand you don't want to put any worries or extra kind of stress on your kid. And, and that's and that's totally um, I understand and respect that. I think that there's a balance there so you can still be honest and open with them where you might not have to tell them exactly, you know, your annual income and everything like that if you don't feel comfortable with it. But um, if you do, go ahead. You know, the, the idea of understanding, hey, everybody needs to budget no matter how much money you're making. We all have to, we all have limits and we all have obligations and um, that need to get taken care of. And I think sharing that with, with kids helps them in their own adult life when when they're setting up their own um, you know money portfolios and whatnot. How do you approach as a mom and and as someone who obviously advises others on their finances too and, under, and understands it? How do you approach like the early stage stuff of you know the, whether it's the piggy bank or maybe a weekly allowance or chores mm-hmm. that you have to do? Um, I mean, these are obviously all opportunities to instill good habits or a solid understanding of finances with young people. Yep. There's lots of different approaches to allowance. Um, there's one point of view that says if you if you set it up so that they do a certain amount of chores to get their pay at the end of the week, that's kind of the salary model. If uh, there's another um, idea out there where you create um, a value for a job and just post it on the board. And when a kid mm. feels like they need money, and they're short or they want to go to the movie theater or they want to do something else uh, that they need extra money for, then they'll look for that work. And so that kind of is the the entrepreneurial way of doing an allowance. So it depends family to family how you want to do it um, or if you want to do it. You know, the the big idea uh, in terms of opening the conversation for kids is just sharing sharing your decision making, sharing your why you're doing your choices, how you're making your choices. And that for the allowance age kids will, um, regardless of whether you give them an allowance, will set them up for um, creating those good habits. Love it. I know that uh, a lot of people are going to be really grateful for this, uh, Pam, because obviously everybody wants the best for their kids. Yeah, and, for and sure. I think a lot of us have, you know, people have attended the school of hard knocks, When it comes to getting finances back on track, right? For a lot of Mm -hmm. people, you know, you get to the point where whatever step you've got to take, 
um, you know, for a lot of people, they'll they'll look back and say, gosh, I wish I wish as I was on the concourse at the hockey game applying for a credit card because I got a free T-shirt. <laughs> this is personal testimony. Yeah, <laughs> I wish somebody would have talked to me about how there's a there's a better interest rate out there than 28 percent. Yeah, uh, that's right. And, and how going for dinners you can't afford when you're 19 years old isn't always the best play. Um, yeah, <laughs> the game is money prep. You find it at moneyprep.com helps kids create and build strong money habits available for ages five through 12 uh, developed by uh pam who's joined us pam leonage and uh, grateful for it thanks for your time thank you i appreciate the time ryan great yeah, to talk to you you bet you as well pam thanks so much i was looking uh, and i knew that that our live chat would be going off and it is and it's great because everybody's you know people are in all different situations coming at this from different scenarios i mean we not to be rude why am i saying it's rude it's so hardwired in you not to talk about money not to be rude but no it's a fact and we know this because of our question of the week uh, put out by our research and strategy partners at Y Station. You answer a few questions for us, just demographically, give us a sense of where you're at, like physically where you're at. Are you, are you in are you in Alberta? Are you in Ontario? Are you international? An international audience member, and a lot of you uh, divulge to us what your family or your household income is. And we know that there are people that watch this show or listen to the podcast every day that earn a, a modest income. And we know that there are people that that enjoy uh, a more significant, a more robust income. You might say. Uh, and so all these conversations will land differently with people, right? You know, Tracy says, I got into debt because of credit cards, credit cards I started using that I applied for in line at university registration. That's where they'll get you. It's where they hook you. And then all of a sudden it's 28% and it's a thousand bucks and you can't pay it and you can't make the minimum monthly payment. Then you hear about balance transfers and then you balance transfer. Or you hear about, uh, you know, money, Mart. you see the commercial already piling into the Jeep. We're going to money, Mart, and then you end up, we're going to get sued by money Mart right now, but it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. You know, there's a lot of like, you know, you get like, I'm not trying to pigeonhole the, the problem here, but you get people oftentimes, you know, single parents or or people that find themselves in a situation where they've lost their jobs and they need a, a little cash infusion to keep the lights on literally. And then you've got these interest obligations that you're never going to be able to get out of. And and governments have taken steps to legislate against these predatory lenders because they're so damaging to people. You know, I, I mean, I mean, I. I think right now it, it makes sense for us to read some of these comments, right? Like Patrick says, I focus on teaching teenagers about awareness, like habits mm. and how marketing works and what credit is. Patrick says, you need awareness before you can control yourself. I've been teaching Wyatt about a certain fast food restaurant that puts toys in the boxes that they give kids. And I said, Wyatt, they're trying to trick you. I said, they're trying to trick you into wanting to go get a toy, but they know that the toy's just going to break and the food's not healthy for you. And every time we go past one of those restaurants and their iconic sign, he says, dad, there they are. They want to trick me. I say they do, kiddo. They do. They want to trick you. I just find it so... I get such a sense of relief to know that that was so many other folks' experiences where we did not talk about money. Um, it was rude, very rude to yeah. know what my folks made uh, annually. Did you ever dig around to try to figure it out? No, I didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> no way, Jose. Um, we didn't get allowances. 
So it's interesting to hear that idea, that model of either doing a salary or doing, um, you know, project based. Mm -hmm. That was my parents. That resonated with me. Yeah. And it was funny when Pam brought up the example, she said, so if you want to go to the movies, that was specifically what it was for Mm. me. And so my, my mom, uh, you know, would set up those types of jobs. And I was always grateful for it. It was, it was kind of the first real opportunity that we had to, I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, if you're 12 or 13 or 14 to be able to get 20 bucks was a big deal, deal. but it would be, you know, you'd have to dust the upstairs in the main level. You'd have to vacuum all the carpets and wash all the floors. And then that in exchange would be 20 bucks. And I remember once my parents extending me credit Ooh. I needed. I remember specifically what it was. I don't remember what I needed the money for, but I remember that it was specifically sixty dollars. So it must have been something cool. It's probably new basketball shoes or something like that. And and I remember my mom saying, "Okay, that's like three full like dusting, vacuuming floor jobs. Like that's three full ones." And she had me sign. It was like a note card, and we signed it. And then the next time I went to the well for twenty bucks, she was like, "Nope." Like you owe us three of these. Right. So work it off. And then once you work those three off, then you can borrow again or you can go earn again that $20. That's like very basic stuff, but it's not basic in the sense that it forms your understanding. There's not just this endless tap you turn on if you need 20 or 40 or 60 bucks, right? Jillian touching on religions where you're not technically allowed to borrow money or pay interest, which is true. Yeah, it's true. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Friends of ours, it's it's their scenario. It's It's why they're not currently homeowners. Scott says our idea these days, how much debt is okay is so different than 40 years ago. Our reliance on debt to fuel our lives is extremely dangerous. That from Scott. Meantime, Craig says, I'll catch up by the way, everyone. Craig's got to go to work signing off our live chat says, I guess I'll catch up on eat your words after my meeting. I can't wait for that. Well, Craig, this one's for you. (laughs) Craig, you're done all your work and you're now back with us hours later. And we're so happy to have you back, Craig, because every Thursday, Thanks to our friends at Prairie Catering, we offer somebody an opportunity to eat your words. And today, it's a special municipal election edition of Eat Your Words. Now, this one's going to take a while to hash through because uh, you on mass real talkers kept sending us more and more and more and more and more examples all along the same lines. Thanks to Sam Brooks, technical producer of this show, who took approximately 17 hours to load up all of these tweets. Yep. Let's do it. (laughs) Let's get into it. You know how the municipal elections went in our home province of Alberta on Monday night. Let's tee these up, Sam. First, out of the gates a while ago. This was, in fact, June of 2020. Amarjeet Sohi at the time, he'd recently lost his brother. His wife was fighting cancer. And he said, folks, I'm taking a break from Twitter for a bit. And that prompted the recently re-elected conservative uh, MP out of St. Albert, Michael Cooper, to say no one cares after Millwood's voters resoundingly showed you the door which you richly deserved. Just a real class act, that Michael Cooper. And then there was this tweet that, that you passed along to us. This was from Mike Nickel, who recently, you may remember, on Monday got his ass kicked trying to become the mayor of Edmonton. Uh, taking on Andrew Knack. Uh, That's weird because the two weren't running against each other. As a matter of fact, Andrew Knack didn't do anything to deserve this. But last October, Mike Nichols said, this council has squandered the generosity and goodwill of our people. The people are speaking loudly. Andrew Knack has disappointed me the most with his obscure fascination with bizarre and wasteful projects. Andrew, it is time for a change. What? What did Andrew Knack do to you, Nickel? The answer is nothing, of course. And then there was this one. What about this one here? 
Andrew Knack keeping it classy. What does he do? Basically the same day. Happy seven-year election anniversary to Bev Esslinger and Scott McKean and Mike Nickel and Michael Walters and to Michael Oshry, although he's no longer on council. It's been a pleasure working with you, and I thank you all for the opportunity to learn from each of you. Is Andrew Knack too nice? That question for another day. Let's get to our next tweet, Sam. How about this one from Mike Nickel? This was in March of 2021. For months, he said, I've been hearing from others that Andrew Knack and Amarjeet Sohi are deciding which one of them is running for mayor. Is this true? If so, make sure you're transparent with the public on any terms of the arrangement. Okay. And then, right around that same time, Mike Nichols out in Andrew Knack's constituency. He says, my team was was in a certain neighborhood yesterday in your ward, and they received feedback from a homeowner, homeowner who lived there. He, he said, you know, he's seen you campaigning, And he's seen you on council, but he hasn't seen any improvements in the neighborhood. And he shows a picture of some cracks in the sidewalk because that's what city councilors are responsible for is repairing cracks in the sidewalk. What's Nickel doing in Andrew Knack's riding, posting photos about cracked sidewalks? Unbelievable. And then there was this. (laughs) Jeez. This one here, someone replies to Mike Nickel and says, Andrew Knack doesn't care about anything unless it involves the LRT. He needs to resign to put this city closer to being great again. He says, I'm embarrassed to say he's my counselor. Andrew Knack replies, thank you for the feedback. I'm sorry that you're embarrassed by me. If you ever want to discuss your concerns in detail, please give me a call at, and then he puts his phone number out there in public. He says, so we can chat and thank you for your comments. The guy goes on to basically say, well, we got back and forth before and a phone call with you would be a complete waste of my time. And and Andrew Knack replies and says, even if we don't agree, a phone call is always useful. This is why people like me get really sick of bullies punching Andrew Knack in the face. This is the root of a lot of this. But wait, there's more. What about this one from Mike Nickel again? He's talking about, you know, the idea around defunding the police. And and he says, you know, I like this comment from a guy by the name of Steve Weston. Steve is running uh, in Ward, Nakota, Iska against Andrew Knack. And then he promotes Steve's website. You'd be saying who? And I would say exactly. Next tweet, please. Here's the next one. Mike Nickel now taking shots at Michael Walters, who was on our show on Tuesday morning. Michael Walters, of course, was caught on a live mic. That he said, "I'm so sick and tired of this motherfucker, Mike Nickel." Mike Nickel says he's adver- he's advocating for political violence, and it's beyond wrong. He says, he says, oh my gosh, these guys are hypocrites. He says, thank you, by the way, to Tony Katarina, former Edmonton counselor, former Edmonton counselor, for highlighting how severely biased the code of conduct process is at City Hall. Thank you to the counselors who did the right thing. What do Mike Nickel and Tony Katarina have in common? Both of them got their asses handed to them on Monday night in the election. Sam, next tweet, please. We would expect, of course, that Alberta's Minister of Justice, Alberta's Solicitor General, would stay the fuck away from the election you would think so but no the honorable casey madu alberta's justice minister fundamentally he says i appeal to you to reject trudeau's agents at edmonton city hall i ask for those who mean well for our great city to unite to save our city and to set it on course for economic prosperity and renewal an endorsement from the justice minister for mike nickel but i'm not done yet because there's this one too 
This one from Mike Nicklaus said, Today was an odd day. This was in June of 2021. We're taking you chronologically through all of this. He says, Edmonton Council voted 7-6 to six to follow the medical advice of our top two doctors and the mask mandate. Common Sense was winning, but, and here comes another pile on, Aaron Paquette and Andrew Knack, neither of them running against Mike Nickel. Both of them won, by the way, Monday night. He says they were losing, but then here came the push. And then he pushes this out neither of these guys are running against him he says it's time for change when it comes to counselors knack and paquette what do you think well since you asked mr nickel here's what i think i think that time and time and time and time and hang on let me just check my list here time and time and time and time and time again you were a real jerk to a whole bunch of people and the people have spoken mike nickel As you lick your wounds and fade into obscurity, may I invite you to eat your words. Presented by Prairie Catering. Our friends at Prairie Catering want you to know that if you're considering hosting your team or your company's holiday party at the Art Gallery of Alberta, they have facilities that can accommodate your group, including sensitivities around distancing and everything else that's on our mind these days. You can also book them to cater your team's holiday party from in-person buffets to these boxed heat and serve meals that are the new rage. You go, hey, listen, we can't gather in person. So instead, we're going to send everybody a heat and serve gorgeous gourmet meal to their homes and have a zoom party a virtual party prairie catering nails it i've been part of one of those they hit it out of the park and they're excited to introduce a brand new menu exclusively for the holiday season you can find them online at prairiecatering.ca and if you have a suggestion for eat your words we want to encourage you to pass it along to us at talk at ryanjesperson.com gosh i love that music bed I was kind of wishing there'd be more tweets. I mean, not really. That was enough. That was more than enough. But it was just like... It's the longest eat your words we've ever done. You kind of get into a groove. I was trying to make eye contact with you, Sam. Like, are we about to run out of tunes here as the band? Is the Real Talk Studio Band about to stop playing? (laughs) Is Paul Schaefer winding down right now? (laughs) Paul Schaefer works here? Uh, uh, We actually did run out of tunes. And uh, I'm just so good you didn't notice. Nobody noticed that you did such a good job with the fade and the reload and the loop. That's the thing about Brooks. When he does a great job, you just it's you so just don't know. brooksy has got the kind of job where you sit there and you say, this is where you know that they're doing their best. You know they're doing their best work if you don't notice it, mm-hmm. right? Which is the case with a lot of people that deserve recognition. Stefan sent us an email. The headline, uh, the subject line rather, uh, grabbed my attention. It says the removal of Sean Chu. And so I opened it. This is the city council. Just to refresh you, if you're listening from elsewhere in Canada or if you're, uh, if you're maybe not paying hyper close attention to what's going on in the city of Calgary, uh, a city councilor just uh, narrowly achieved reelection, but it's going to be a short lived tenure at city hall. There's no possible way this guy can stick around. I mean, you may say technically or legally, there's a way that he can stick around, but people will refuse to work with him. I guarantee it. Who would work for him? Like, can you imagine he's hiring a chief of staff or he's going to hire a, a, a communications assistant? Like really? You're going to work for the guy that's that's been accused of some pretty horrific things, including in his time as a Calgary police officer, sexually touching a minor, bringing a minor to his home, firearms involved. I mean, this is a disaster. 
And Stefan, as I opened the email, I, I realized that he wasn't writing to me. In fact, he was writing to the Minister of Municipal Affairs, to Rick McIver, and he CC'd our show, which we always encourage you to do. So these emails are on the record. So the government can't deny that nobody's been talking about it, that nobody's been reaching out to them. It's why we have entire email folders where we have literally thousands of emails sent to the premier and to ministers CCing us. And Stefan says it is unconscionable that somebody who has demonstrated this kind of unethical action while in a position of power over a vulnerable minor be allowed to remain an elected official in this province. Furthermore, advanced polling for the recent municipal election had concluded prior to this information being released publicly, which resulted in many voters casting ballots with no awareness of this information that would certainly have impacted their voting intention. Because Mr. Chu is not convicted under the criminal code, Calgary's city council is unable to take necessary action. We talked to Mayor Gondek about that. Stefan says this could only be performed by the Minister of Municipal Affairs. And for this reason, I implore you to remove Mr. Chu from his position as city councilor. It is on the radar. There's a there's a protest planned, as a matter of fact, for this Sunday right outside Calgary City Hall. And you can learn more about that online. I mean, just Google it. Just look for the the, the uh, I mean, just Google Sean Chu, S-E-A-N, or search him on Twitter and you'll see there's there's Twitter accounts that have been created to getting this guy removed. People have pointed out that the provincial government has been threatening to or maybe at least flexing a little muscle when it comes to you know dissolving dysfunctional school boards or removing school trustees from positions. It's been suggested by some legal experts that there is a mechanism or a lever that the provincial government can pull here. Now, what makes it particularly interesting is that Sean Chu is a big backer of the UCP. The UCP has been, at least by proxy, with ministers, MLAs, prominent donors, supporters, party members, constituency association presidents, supporters of Sean Chu. I mean, people have provided evidence that Tyler Shandro, uh, a minister, a senior cabinet minister under Jason Kenney's government, was a donor to the Sean Chu campaign. Now, I said this calls for some reason. In To some degree, this calls for the benefit of the doubt. I do not believe that people that were donating to Sean Chu's reelection campaign knew about these, or at least I don't think that the majority of people would have donated had they known. So I do have mixed feelings. I don't know about the two of you. I do have mixed feelings about these donor lists being released and people saying, look at all these like Tyler Shandro. Oh, Tyler Shandro donated to this. You know, there have been circumstances where people, celebrities, politicians or otherwise have disappointed their fans have disappointed people that have supported them. And I'm quite certain that the majority of people that are on that donor list right now are appalled to see their names being released publicly. This I, guy has become poisonous. I I, I understand that it, it's like, oh, God, my name's on there. But at the same time, no, it's it's vital for democracy that we know who the donors are. It's just I like consider the optics. Do you think it's fair that if I were to have a horrific scenario unfold where I uh, like, uh, oh boy. you know, it turned out that uh, the church arsons right, from a couple of months ago, that it surfaced that I was the guy that burned down the church in, in X community. OK, do you think it would be fair for people to go to one of our sponsors and say, huh, looks like you support uh, burning down churches? Do you think that would be fair? Well, it's not true. And I, I think that that's no, but what is what, No, but what is true is that I burned down the church. Okay, let me be clear. It's not true that I burned down a church. 
in this hype in this hypothetical scenario let's say i was accused of arson i was charged with arson yeah is it fair for people to go to those that have supported me and our show and to say that you are associated with this guy by way of sponsorship so therefore you support this or you are you deserve to be held account for this uh i think it's important that people know who supports whom but what i agree with you I agree with you, so but if, I don't. If, think, if, my my point is, I don't think that people were supporting or would have supported Sean Chu had they known about this. Well, absolutely, right. I and I agree with that, but I I don't think that that is then an argument to say no or like no transparency on the on the donor list. Not what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm just saying I'm I'm calling for. I think Thank we, you for I, the clarification. I think we're on the same team here. I think what I'm saying is that I think there needs to be a moment of pause. Yes. to recognize yes. that people donating to the Sean Chu re-election campaign likely would not have and are probably appalled that they donated to a campaign that ultimately is standing to represent somebody who's received a pass after a, a track record of abusive behavior mm. toward women including minors mm-hmm. what do you think sam i think there's a couple things like number one donors lists two two things have happened in this election okay uh, one of them is that companies are not allowed to donate as a company anymore, which means the donor lists are kind of weird to read because they're all individuals. They're all personal donations. They're all personal donations, even yeah. though we know like a lot of it, especially the big ones, are corporate money. So that is, you know, that that is a policy created by the UCP to veil some corporations from being attached to certain candidates. Well, I, except for that previously you could have corporate and personal donations. So technically business owners could donate twice. They could yeah, double up. That's and true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it means something different. If you're going to put your name on it, than yeah. your company's name. The yeah. second thing I was going to say is donors lists are released without timelines on them. Here's just a big list of names and you don't know if they donated a year ago, three months ago or a week ago. And I think that, because we track everything with new revelations or new information coming forward, it's like everything kind of marches in this very linear time beat. Having that little piece of transparency on the donor list would do us all a big favor. You know, I had a wonderful conversation yesterday that was off the record, and I'll leave the majority of it off the record. Um, let me say it was not the terms. Put it this way. If if I would have said, or if this person, Greg Zeschuk, uh, one of the founders of BioWare, uh, a very prominent uh, video game designer uh, and a man who who did an unbelievable job with his team, uh, Ray Musica and the others in building uh, just a, an empire in gaming, um, it has now put his money into a ton of things, including this is about to get local uh, to our, our audience members in Edmonton. But the development of the Ritchie market, including the celebrated restaurant Bira, uh, the amazing beer brand Blind Enthusiasm. Greg's done a ton of things. Um, and it surfaced a while ago that he had made a five thousand dollar donation to the Mike Nickel for mayor campaign. And Greg was getting piled on online. He was taking his lumps online. And he and I had a conversation yesterday because, of course, we wanted to let him know that the door was open to come on the show if he wanted to talk about it. And um, and I'll keep our conversation private, except to say that I had I was so impressed with Greg's perspective. And, and you can find he has his own personal website where he did release a statement about it. And he's put so much thought into this. One of the things he said to me yesterday was that he said this has been such a good reminder for me and such a great opportunity to take pause and reconsider how I approach my philanthropy and how I manage my donations. And and it was a big wake up call for Greg, who admitted that he hadn't put a lot of conscious thought into it 
I mean, he quite frankly says in his statement, which anybody can really read, it's a public statement online. He said, when I was working to open Ritchie Market and some of the zoning things that came up and some of the business barriers, he said that at that time, Mike Nickel, who was the counselor in that area, had worked to help us out. And so I donated to reflect that. He said, unaware of what that platform would come to represent. It's just another example, like you said, Sam, of timelines when it comes to donations. And for Greg, I mean, that was something that was problematic for him. I really, really think he deserves a lot of credit for how he approached that. And I encourage you to check out his public statement. I'll, uh, we can tweet that out or we'll push it out. For, Hoyles is our, I knew from the look on your face, you were already doing it, Hoyles. Gosh, you're good at what you do, Sarah Hoyles. So it's something to think about, friends. And I encourage you to uh, keep us in the loop on that. We promised five emails today. I've read four. I was going to say, where what's the tally at? We're coming up on one of the longest episodes of Real Talk ever, which means I should probably hurry my ass up. We'll sign off with S. McFury. S. McFury uh, said, you know, folks, it, it's, it's now been a couple of days after this municipal election, and I just finished watching a pretty exciting edition of Real Talk, your Tuesday show. And everybody's celebrating, it seems, these big wins in Alberta's two largest cities, Edmonton and Calgary. And it's amazing, and it really is. And Ryan, you made a passing reference a few times to the other cities who also saw big changes. And I tried so hard to feel the excitement that so many are feeling, but I am quite literally weeping as I write this email. On Monday, Lethbridge, a city of 100,000 people, experienced a devastating outcome as the result of a split progressive vote. McFury says our election was an absolute shit show. Six candidates running for mayor, 32 candidates vying for eight seats on council. The mayoral list, too many progressive candidates failing to see the bigger picture. So this will get local for our audience members in Lethbridge. McFury says, had Sheldon Day Chief and or Stephen Mogden set aside personal aspirations and backed Bridget Mearns, she would have easily won. We, we could have had an incredible council. Instead, our UCP supporting mayor-elect Blaine Higgin won by 508 votes. And we're now under the leadership of the perfect UCP pawn in the municipal game of chess. He supports big time spending on crime and policing. Remember, the Lethbridge Police Service has been under the microscope for a number of really problematic incidents, including, I don't know, tailing a minister of the crown, Shannon Phillips, and tackling a, a store worker dressed up as a stormtrooper on May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. They take down this stormtrooper because they thought that she had a firearm. And it was just anyway. Back to McFury's email. You know, this mayor was the champion who led the campaign against our supervised consumption service against arches. And he now sits at the table with four right leaning counselors who make up a five to four vote. And it's a very big deal in a city with the types of problems that Lethbridge has. Humans will die because of the decisions that these counselors will no doubt make. But nobody knows how big of a deal it is because we are just one of those other cities that from McFury. I hope that if anything, this goes to show that. We read the emails you send us, and this is a platform that we invite you to use to prompt conversation, to draw attention to issues that matter to you, issues you know that will matter to others as well. Before we sign off, I want to remind you that our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge for, for about the last six months, we've been acknowledging as part of these mentions that they haven't had the new car inventory that they've wanted. You've not been able to just walk in and buy a Dodge Ram if you were looking for something to pull your trailer this summer because uh, dealerships across North America were experiencing shortages. Well, guess what? The shortages are over. <laughs> and October is their biggest sale of the year. And right now, 
or at least at last mention, they had over 330 Dodge Ram 1500 pickups for you to choose from. Over 150 Jeep Grand Cherokees. They've got Wranglers and Gladiators and Challengers and, of course, everything else in that Jeep and Dodge lineup that makes them the best sellers across Canada year after year. You can find them online via the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com, or go see them in person for the biggest sale of the year at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Our friends at Local Waste, I know, are getting excited for tomorrow. That's because another edition of Trash Talk is coming up here on the show, proudly presented by Local Waste Services. It's construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection. You can request a quote today, whether it's a one-time bin that you need for a renovation project, a yard cleanup, or whether you're a business owner looking for a, a better deal with your waste management provider. They do it best, they do it locally, and they operate independently, family-owned at localwaste.ca. Our friends at Friesen Brothers are getting super excited, I know, because Oktoberfest is upon us, and that means that you have a chance at select stores in Stony Plain, Fort Saskatchewan, Drumheller, Hinton Hill, Peace River, and that stunning new store in Edmonton on Saturday, October 23rd. That's this Saturday from 4 to 8 to participate in an Oktoberfest feast. You do not want to miss this. You can learn more about what it entails, what's on the menu by visiting Friesen.com. You can link to their website again under the Sponsors tab on our website, RyanJesperson.com. Coming up on tomorrow's show, I'm really excited for it. Our Real Talk Roundtable. We are going back to back. It's back to back jacks. We're going to talk to the winner's circle when it comes to the recent municipal elections. Three pretty high profile new councillors across the province will join us. Plus ADHD in adults. How much do we know about it? Coming up tomorrow. We'll see you then. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.